everyone and welcome to episode 84 of the Retrospectors podcast Diablo 2. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Turlings. How you going guys? And far more importantly yet another special guest Shane Kosky of the Retro Hangover podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today Shane. Oh well uh, thank you. Um, I don't know about far more important but you know what I'll take the compliments where I can get them. <laughs> it's uh, it's less of a direct compliment and more of a diss of James but I agree you should always <laughs> say compliments where you can get them. <laughs> so so Shane uh, I, I first discovered your podcast when I was trawling the podcast um, I guess the podcast web. I, I like listening to lots of other uh, video gaming podcasts you know just to listen to what other people are doing but also to discover uh, games that I've never played before because there are so many games out there that I've never played in a million years and I gotta say the very first time I listened to your show I was a little uh, put off <laughs> well <laughs> because do you tell. guys have some very special introductions we do. as I'm sure you're well aware <laughs> yeah we we knew kind of from the beginning that that was going to be let's say divisive and uh, we we toned it back actually for a little bit, and you know what the 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 stalwart fans decided that uh, that was no good, and they wanted the obnoxious Chris scream back, and so we give the people what they want. It's so funny because I li- I've listened to literally multiple episodes where um after you go on from the obnoxious scream to talking about dragons fucking cars about other things, <laughs> you, you guys you guys say something to the effect of man I I wonder what people listen when they when they hear this show for the first time and I'm like. You know, they'll either know what we're about or they'll think we're trash. And as I was listening, I was like, my God, this is trash. Nice. But the thing is, it's a misdirect because I I continued listening. And what I discovered was that you guys actually are very thoughtful and detailed and excellent in your critiques of these old games. So I, I really love your show. Um, It's just people need to be aware of that introduction. <laughs> you know, we well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I would say that if for nothing else, it functions as a filter. You know, it's like a test. It's like it's like <laughs> the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like if you can make it through the slings and arrows, then, you know, you get to the good stuff. Mm. And and that's how I felt. Like I uh, just recently, I listened to your Tomb Raider episode, and I just really enjoyed your critique of it. It it really sounds like with that game, the way the platforming worked was that it really took from the classic Prince of Persia games. I don't know how yes. familiar you are with those, yes. but yeah, I I listened to another show, Nostalgia Goggles podcast on Prince of Persia, and that whole thing where you have to like press a direction to confirm your jump that literally sounds like what you were experiencing with tomb raider oh yes listen as i said i'm or at least i'm pretty sure i said it in the episode i wanted to like tomb raider like everything about that to me is like i should like this game and the the tank controls just really really killed it for me i gotta be honest yeah james and i have a uh, mixed history with tank controls don't we james uh, I'm pretty sure we have exactly one experience with tank controls, and uh, that was Resident Evil uh, One, and it was a fucking amazing game. 
Um, so obviously all games with tank controls are good, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, yeah that's I, why I think I, that's how correlation works, yeah. That's why we're doing Prince of Persia 3D next games. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's the Retro Hangover podcast. Where, where can people find you, Shane? Is there anything else you want to add about your show? I mean, I've kind of told everyone what I think of it, but what, what do you think of it? It's hot garbage, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, get that out right now. That's why you're on our show, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a step up, honestly, you know, I mean, I hope Chris, my co-host doesn't listen to this, but God, it's so nice to be on a show that's not terrible, right? Uh, but yeah, no, we are the Retro Hangover podcast. Uh, my my co-host, Chris, and myself, we uh, we pick one game per episode. Our, our cutoff is it has to be at least 10 years old. Anything older than that is fair game. So we've got plenty of ground to cover but uh we pick one game and you know we kind of talk about our own personal experiences and then we also have a scripted brief history section so you can't say you know that you uh didn't learn something along the way and you know then we kind of go through categorically talking about the game from graphics to the gameplay to just about everything and then wrap everything up in a nice bow at the end you know talking about uh, whether it holds up today or not so uh if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in then the easiest way to find it is either just search retro hangover in your favorite podcasting app or you can just head to linktree slash retro hangover uh, and that will give you a handy dandy little button menu that you can pretty much go wherever you want as long as it's related to us and we'll of course pop a link in the show notes and yeah i i really do appreciate those um those introductions you do because it's something that i'm extremely lazy about <laughs> i go to wikipedia you know say a few details and then we get into the show and to be fair like our show is very much stylized in the modern perspective critical point of view whereas i think you guys are a bit more balanced in how you approach it right uh, I, yeah, I would say so. Honestly, it's interesting because when you mentioned that to me, uh, when you had asked if I'd like to be on the show and you said that, you know, we kind of take this more as strictly like looking at it, not with nostalgia goggles or anything, but how does this play today? Mm. Um, that's, I think the, my, the minority piece of like what we tend to talk about, because we usually like to try to give the game sort of its due in the context of the time that it was released. So I think, um, having your perspective on it, as super important so i think both of those together kind of balance each other out yeah completely agree and we've said this many times before like we we talk about from the modern perspective but that's an incomplete point of view mm. but i do still think it's a valid one and i think it's oh, one yeah. that's probably a little under explored in a lot of ways sure um with people just saying you don't get it as uh, <laughs> as james and i have uh had discussions about jrpgs in the past but i Oof. that's a that's a question for another show right gents when you finally inflict yeah. another one upon me yeah because i mean there are going to be lots of people like that who just don't get a game because they didn't play it when it came out right i find those people when you're looking for good reviews it's it's kind of hard to find that perspective that isn't coming from you know why this game is so great from a person who's played it for 10 years you know um <laughs> you know you might not have that reaction to it coming into a game for the first time oh for sure absolutely not and there have been plenty of times where we've picked up something and it's actually it's interesting that you mentioned jrpgs because i feel like chris my co-host and james would get along famously because he's a huge jrpg nerd and i'm <laughs> the one that didn't really have a lot of experience with those as i was growing up and so going back to them now he's like yeah this game's amazing you gotta try it. you gotta try it and i go and play it and i'm like 
Chris, this is trash. Why am I playing this? And he's like, you don't understand. So, believe me, I get I'm, it. I'm glad we got the right guest from your podcast <laughs> on the show. Yes, I'm you not chose sure, wisely. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure Chris would have been welcome. It, it'll be a repeat of when we had the other Chris on our show. I'm going to make sure he knows that, too. <laughs> yeah, and the other Chris was more on my side, uh, side of the argument. It's like, that game was amazing, referring to, of course, Luna Silver Star Story. Oh, no. Which, uh, not, oh, God. Okay, yeah, no, you picked the right one. Vindicated. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you my article afterwards. You'll, you'll enjoy it, I hope. But for all that, we are not here to talk about um, Luna, even though it does, you know, end up coming up a lot. We're here to talk about Diablo 2, but before we do, uh, for those who are listening to us for the first time, uh, we are the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, like, uh, like Shane does on his show, we play a classic game of the past from start to finish with the intention of evaluating if that game is truly worth your time to play today we're not a nostalgia podcast and that's the critical thing about us we're not here to understand these games in the context of the times in which they were produced we're just here to play them through and talk about our experiences to see if they're actually true classics or whether we think they're actually true classics so diablo 2 um oh i should mention we've also done an episode on diablo 1 quite a long time ago uh episode 19 Highly recommend you give that a listen because this is a sequel episode and we always take cues from that first episode, our experiences in the in the previous game. And I just think it's good to provide context. So I recommend you give that a listen as well, uh, whether it's afterwards or before is up to you. I will second that. Yeah, it's it's just um it's just always better to have that, I guess, have those gaps in our conversation filled in in your head so you understand what we're talking about. Yeah, and we were talking about this before the show, but I'm a bit, whenever I go back and I listen to the old episodes, I'm like, <laughs> uh, the editing was so bad. But I think the Diablo episode was genuinely quite good, and I'm quite proud of it to this day, even though a lot of the older episodes, you know, the fact that people start on episode one hurts oh. my soul. Uh, that's one I can, you know, proudly get behind. Um, so Diablo 2, it's a hack and slash action RPG developed by Blizzard and was first released in 2000 for Windows and Mac. An expansion, Lord of Destruction, was released a year later in 2001, which we also played for the show. And I think that if you're playing these games today, you kind of have to take them as a package. Um, no one is really going to be playing vanilla Diablo 2 today, whether it's the original or the remaster. Um, you play as a hero following in the wake of a destructive evil force associated with a mysterious wonder and must murder a lot of demons and other evil creatures in your quest to find them and try, and, try to figure out what's going on. Um, also, as I just mentioned, um, there was just a remaster release, released just in September last year. So it's just a little bit over six months old, uh, which included the Lord of Destruction expansion pack, as well as a bunch of quality of life changes like... Changes to how the stash works and gold auto picking up. Although surprisingly less quality of life changes than you might think. Uh, most, From what I've read, most of the gameplay is basically essential. Those quality of life changes that Blizzard really had a very light touch with, with the game in terms of how it played. With most of the effort gone into changes to the presentation and soundtrack and sound effects and things like that yeah as far as i'm aware like the remaster remake is the original diablo 2 with a fresh coat of paint slapped on top like you can toggle between 
the old and the new visual style at any time, I believe. That's right. Yeah, it does just have the original engine running under the hood. So it's not a complete remake. It's more of a uh, very high quality remaster. Yeah, HD remaster. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, truth be told, I mean, going that route was actually very problematic for them as well, because they were, you know, resurrecting this arcane code from a couple decades ago and being like, how the fuck do we make this work <laughs> today? And uh, but the thing is, is for them, it was like handling a hand grenade, right? Because you have this entrenched fan base that's like, we just want better graphics, but don't mess with any of the mechanics because it's the game we love. And it's like, yeah, but also there's a bunch of stuff we've been complaining about for like 20 years. So and we will probably get into that in a little bit. They're slowly making actual changes to the game now with the upcoming Mm 2.4 patch, which as far as I'm concerned, is actually a good thing. But it can be fairly divisive depending on who you talk to. What's interesting, when they first pitched it, they probably had to get, keep it quite similar. But now that people have had a chance to play it, they are more allowed to change it, I guess. That's probably how it ended up working. Yeah, I, I figured they'd go the route that um, Jagex or whoever went with uh, old school RuneScape, where they released the mm. old game exactly as it was. And then slowly over time, by doing community polls and gauging interest, they make little quality of life changes and fixes that don't you know detract from the core experience so but you know they take it slow and slowly get to a better product rather than you know dramatically changing it over time and i think that was a good approach because it allows you know the diehard fans that don't want anything touched to get in at launch and play you know the game exactly as it was and then you know it becomes a bit more accessible to people over its life cycle agreed and and as someone that's you know going into it having played it for years and years like having them have that as sort of like a a baseline i think is crucial and then from there i'm glad that they're making some actual changes for the first time in a couple decades it really refreshes the game because there's a lot of things that frankly have become stale over time and so there's a lot of underutilized you know character builds things like that so i think they were real smart about how they approached that so shane on that topic i think this is a game where your level of experience with the Diablo games and the broader genre as a whole matters a lot. So can you let mm. tell us a little bit about your history with Diablo, the Diablo games, but also if you've played any other ARPG games? Like, have you played much in this broader genre as well? Oh, so many. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so as, as far as Diablo and the franchise is concerned, uh, I've been playing Diablo more or less since i won't say right exactly from the beginning because i was a a wee bit too young at that particular time in 1995 but i want to say i think i picked up the very first diablo right around 97 i want to say give or take Mm -hmm. and uh started from there on my family's at the time fantastic you know light gray chonky compact presario desktop pc um i'm pretty sure it might have had a turbo button also (laughs) and it had a dial-up modem for the kids at home that don't know what that is and uh yeah so i i played that then and then as soon as diablo 2 was out i was like day one uh picking that up and never really looked back i diablo is one of those games that i think i actually no i know i go back to and play probably at least once a year for the last 20 something years it's kind of like my comfort food a little Mm. bit (laughs) um 
And then as far as, you know, just the wider uh, ARPG genre, I've dipped my toes into a lot of other, I guess what folks would call, you know, Diablo clones, anything from, you know, Grim Dawn to Path of Exile to Titan Quest, which by the way is criminally underrated. If you ever wanted basically Diablo 2, but in Greek mythology, that's like your jam and you should go check that out. It's like always on sale. Can I ask you something? Sorry, I, I know I'm sure. just in- interjecting here, but so no, I've, I've played a lot of Titan Quest. That was a game I really yeah. got into for a while. Do you think there's merit to playing Titan Quest when Grim Dawn exists? Because Grim Dawn is effectively like it's obviously completely reskinned, but it's right. made by the same developers and it really feels like a sequel to Titan Quest. Is there a mm-hmm. reason to play that original game or would you say just play Grim Dawn? That's a good question. Um, I would say from like a mechanic standpoint, you're probably better off just firing up Grim Dawn if you don't have any pre-existing love for Titan Quest. Mm. But there's a certain something to the atmosphere that they created. And just like I said, that like ancient Greek ambiance that they built into it that just was not it's not something that was replicated in grim dawn of course it's a very different setting and so i think that's actually the huge draw to it like if you've ever liked anything about greek or roman mythology like you're gonna have a good time with that it's so pleasant isn't it it looks so everything's so pretty and idyllic it is while you're splattering monster guts everywhere yeah Mm. but yeah so i mean suffice to say you know i think i've i've touched on a lot of them um there's like what is it adventures of van helsing victor vran um so i've I've tried quite a few i think in my time all right james what about you i mean everyone already knows about your path of exile addiction oh well, i've got about <laughs> 600 hours in that and then i've played we've played diablo one for the show obviously um i played Torchlight 2 for a while with a friend. We played that. Oh, yeah. I never got to the end because we only played on hardcore and we always died at about like act three or four. <laughs> um, it was a very a long few months of, you know, no progress, but it was fun. Um, so I'm, you know, pretty familiar with the genre. I don't think I'm particularly great at the genre, like in Path of Exile. You know, I'll get a character to maybe red maps, which is it's late in the end game, but not all the way to the end. Um, and then Diablo 2, I played as a kid. I don't think I ever finished it um, or probably got up to about Act 3 a couple of times on a Necromancer, um, but never got very far than that. So it's been so long that this was basically a fresh experience for me. Yeah, and as for me, I would say I'm very much a casual player of these kinds of games. I've dabbled in Titan Quest and Torchlight 2 and uh, a lot of the games. I've played Diablo 1 and 2 as a kid, but once again, it was very casual. Like, I don't think I ever got to the nightmare levels or anything. It was just playing through the game once. And I think that the thing that really killed my interest in the genre was um was the diablo 3 launch i i don't know if you guys were playing diablo 3 when it first came out i bought it on launch 2 and I, yeah that also <sighs> killed my life i have the collector's edition box sitting right next to me it's a giant box of regret yeah oh my god it's it started off with not being able to play the game yeah for like two, two to three, three days, days straight yeah error 84 baby uh, and even when you could get in it was like you were moving it about five frames per second and then 
Oh man, I I it was horrible. And I, let's I think talk about that real that money point, auction house. You want to get on? <laughs> oh my god, I, I I could, but I feel like we'd be here for thirty minutes. In fact, <laughs> it will it will probably come up organically when we start talking about the gear system in Diablo two. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it it really turned me off the genre as a whole. Um, I would say that I'm attracted to aspects of the ARP genre that have flourished in other areas like roguelikes for example like I'm really big into roguelikes I love roguelikes because I feel that they can push the limits of loot systems in ways that ARPGs fundamentally cannot mm-hmm. because of how they're structured but yeah I'm I'm very much a casual player with a decent pool of experience with how these work but if you were to ask me how endgame works I I understand in theory, but it's not something I'm very familiar with. Um, the other thing is I've never been a player who's played MMOs. And I know that as ARPGs have developed, it's in large, that end games are in large parts have developed parallel with our understanding of MMOs. So because of that, the, um, the end game of these games is kind of a bit of a black box to me that I don't quite fully understand. But I've, I've got you guys here to, to get me there. So I'll be relying heavily. And you hate grinding, right? Like, the, you would never farm bosses in these games. You would, like, play through the story once and quit once you got bored, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think that I would have to find uh, the act of actually um, beating the monsters kind of fun in and of itself. Yeah. Like I wouldn't just farm for the sake of farming. I do, I do enjoy, you know, I, I do enjoy these games on a base level. Like I like seeing loot and everything, but I have to be enjoying the the moment to moment gameplay. And if I'm not, I'm just going to move on to something else, not continue to do it over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Um, if if you guys don't mind, it actually just popped into my head. I've told this story on our show before, but it's uh extremely apropos here as far as yeah, my. Go ahead personal experiences with Diablo. Um, So the amusing thing about Diablo 2 for me is it was the game that was the reason that my parents uh, limited my computer screen time (laughs) at home because I would come home from school. I would drop my book bag next to the computer desk. I would fire up Diablo 2. I would jump on battle.net with my online character, play, for hours i would then leave it running go eat dinner and then come back and play until bedtime and that went on for maybe a month and my parents were like this has to stop like you can play for an hour a day and that is it and so yeah diablo 2 is the reason that i had a computer curfew oh no Oh, that's dreadful. Yeah, I, I had one of those as well, although it was a different game. It was Counter-Strike that, uh, that got me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you have curfews, James? No, but playing Heroes of New Earth, like just after I finished school, got me kicked out of home. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was fun. Yeah, vi- video games are great, aren't they, guys? It's a real healthy hobby. Yeah, so good. <laughs> Such a good way to have a good relationship with your parents. Listen, the way I look at it, I work in technology now. That's what my degree is in. So I just take that as like, you know, I'll be like, look, mom, see all those times you told me that there nothing good was going to come of me being on that computer all the time. Well, look at me now. <laughs> Um, so I reckon we're about time to jump right into it. I so Diablo two. I I think the first place to start is the story. And the question I have for you, gentlemen, just a simple opening question, is: uh, Do either of you give two fucks about the story of this game? 
Yes. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, okay. I right. don't give a shit about the story beats because I think that the overall plot is kind of, you know, straightforward and predictable. But I think that Diablo 2's presentation of its mediocre story beats, <laughs> um, it was in general so good that I enjoyed it despite not giving a shit about the actual, you know, goings on in the story. Because um, I think that one thing that Blizzard was always incredibly good at um, was cutscenes mm. and voice work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that both of those things are absolutely present here. Um, and I th also think that the story does a fantastic job of setting up the aesthetic and the tone of the game, which for me, narratively, I guess, is my favorite part um is just for the general atmosphere that the story sets up but you know narrative beats don't give a shit also i think that's a fair assessment like you're not necessarily going to care about those individual story beats particularly after your first run through of the game you know you're just like okay yeah i mm -hmm. get it great whatever and truth be told like listen i'm sure that there are some blizzard fanboys out there that are going to crucify me for this but blizzard has never been good at telling a story their stories have always been popcorn, you know, Marvel yeah. blockbuster type shit. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. Um, but they're not penning some sort of epic here. Now, having said that, uh, I personally just I, I've always kind of been into the the lore behind the, the Diablo universe because I was that kid that would just like sit there and read the instruction manuals. That's right. There, there used to be instruction manuals for those of you that don't know that. But, um, and so I, I've actually leafed through like the original Diablo and the Diablo two instruction manuals more times than I think I can count. And there was a lot of actually really great, like lore pieces that they included in those manuals. Um, and so that's what actually really drew me into just the overall kind of world building that they were doing. Um, and so that's the part that I really enjoy. Okay, let me let me ask you this, because the reason I ask the question like that is, of course, because I am not interested in this story at all. I find it, I really don't like when evil things are just evil and good things are good. It kind of is a bit of a turnoff to me. I much prefer something like the witches approach to storytelling with mm -hmm. all the shades of grey. But I think the far bigger issue is that when I play these games, I just feel like I'm, I guess I'm running through a loot windmill. <laughs> That's a bad way to put it. But I'm just like going in a straight line, killing the monsters in this area and then killing them in the next area. And I guess the, there's a bit of a disconnect for me there between sitting there in town, listening to someone talk about the story versus what I'm actually doing in gameplay terms. And I think that as you play these games more and more, they increasingly get you. I increasingly feel like they're abstracted gameplay pieces. And it's very hard for me to be immersed in the world when I'm just looking at numbers on my screen. Yeah, that's interesting. See, one of my big experiences as a kid growing up was that that kind of thing was the default for video games. Like stories were always so disconnected from what was going on in a gameplay point of view that I kind of became, I guess, desensitized to that kind of thing. Like, I just don't notice when there's a huge disconnect between the gameplay and the story, because it was always like that for me. Um, and that was just the norm. So I find it a lot easier, you know, if I play a game that has like 
half an hour of gameplay and then you know a five minute cutscene that's completely different that's just so normal to me um i find it really easy to still pay attention to that and in fact usually if i find the the story to be engaging i find that those little cutscenes and things serve as good rewards for like getting to the end of a section of gameplay i gotta say though like Every time the cutscenes came up in this game, I was like glued to the screen. That the cutscene that plays at the beginning of Act Two, where the the wanderer and his companion are wandering through the desert, just sat there engrossed the entire time. I think I think Blizzard did a fantastic job with the voice work, you know, and the cinematography in there. And I also think that they did an excellent job remastering it for the latest version because it looks almost identical, but, you know, better. Yeah, it's one of those deals where uh, it's the same thing that I said about the the remaster for um, Ocarina of Time for the 3DS in that it looks like how my brain thinks that game looked. Exactly. It's really hard going... When I was, like, watching my gameplay and watching what was going... Uh, on screen in the remaster online it was really hard for me to pinpoint exactly what was different like obviously the details you know and all the fine detail is completely different but they did manage to nail the aesthetic um, and the feel of the original which I find a lot of remasters fail to do you mentioned the Ocarina of Time remake on 3DS I agree with Mm -hmm. that one and then their next remake, when they did re- Majora's Mask, I felt like they lost a lot of the atmosphere in that game. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, is a good example of them not quite getting that right for me. I'm curious about this point that we just made a few moments ago about how there appears to be a perceived disconnect between the storytelling aspects of the game and the gameplay itself. Could we expand on that a little bit? Because I'm, because I, I, I don't tend to agree with that and i'm curious what your rationale is hey let let me see if i can explain it better i it's more that when i play these games i feel like the uh the story veneer is kind of stripped clean Mm -hmm. like i can't really see the story um because everything that's motivating me is the is the numbers like i i want to get better gear i want to um get stronger with my skills I'm thinking about, you know, what what skill is best to use. I'm just not really invested in the storytelling aspect of the game at all because I've played so many of these ARPGs, you know, Grim Dawn, Torchlight, all, all these different games, and they're all the same in terms of their... I guess they're all the same in terms of their gameplay, right? Sure. You kill a lot of monsters, you're trying to get rarer gear, you move on to the next area. It's all exactly the same every single time so when i'm playing these games i'm not playing them for the story the story is not motivating me the story is a sideshow it doesn't mean the story isn't of of itself bad and i actually agree with you both that the atmosphere of this game is very good i even agree that the voice acting is great i mean every character's voice acting is very well done in this game it's just i don't care about it like i'm not i'm not invested in this in this story that's that's fair. And actually, this is it's, it's I suppose I should have expected it because uh, I wanted to bring this up. As a matter of fact, I thoroughly enjoyed your uh, blog article that you wrote on your on your site, by the way, called The Hidden Cost of Optimization, talking about mm. ARPGs. Uh, your the thoughts that you had in that article actually line up almost one to one with me in that I 
and this is the, again, I'm sure there's going to be fans out there that are going to hate me for saying this, but between the two, I would call Diablo 2 probably one of if not the like top game for me like of all time. Uh but having said that, I actually go back and play the first Diablo more regularly than Diablo 2. And it's for the reasons that you pointed out in that article and it's that that game uh had much more emphasis on this atmosphere and this storytelling that we're talking about and less about wringing your hands over you know, character builds and what skills should I choose? Because you just get in and you play and then you don't have to think about that so much. So you're almost free to enjoy the story and the atmosphere more. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I like how you've put it. It's not it's not that the story is bad. It's that it's hard. F- it's just not when I'm playing these ARPGs, it's just not what I care about. Right. It gets overshadowed. Yeah, exactly. But but I, I think that you're on the money that Diablo 1's simplicity allows yourself to become immersed in the world a lot better. Yeah, there's a few yeah, things sure. I think that Diablo 2 does better than Diablo 3 narratively that makes me care or be more immersed in it. The number one thing is that during Diablo 2, I never feel like all the characters are sucking me off like constantly, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'm, great and like, powerful that's... Nephilim. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so annoying and uninteresting and like it's like this game is an epic looting game where I go and I do everything because I'm so cool. It's like, no, this is a game where you're just a guy who, you know, by chance ends up being able to help these rogue exiles and then, you know, all this leads into the final confrontation. And even when you get, like, every time you get to a new zone, the NPCs react to you with some level of suspicion or hostility mm, particularly in act five yeah act yeah five after you one. kill two of the prime evils you're still not trusted to this very you know secluded clan of barbarian warriors or whatever mm. like that all that to me and even if it doesn't quite make sense because if you kill two of the prime evils you're probably going to be a pretty famous guy at this point but the fact that they ignore that and just treat you as a dude helps my immersion so much and doesn't make me feel like i'm playing through you know some marvel theme park game where everyone's telling me how good i am the power uh, fantasy uh, simulator I, yeah I, I can't stand that kind of thing if i'm being honest um and i really thought that the like low dark fantasy feeling that diablo 2 tries to provide was really emphasized by this fact that the story, you're not super special in any way. I thought it was something that was so much better than what they did in 3. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I would even argue that that's further amplified in Diablo 1, even, that, you know, they're just like, Mm. "Uh, wow, it's cool that you came here. Uh, Also, a lot of other adventures have come here. They're all dead, but best of luck, guy. That's pretty much what they're telling you. (laughs) Yeah. I would say that I'm the opposite of you guys in that point that you raised before. Like, the thing that keeps me coming back to these games, particularly Path of Exile, is the numbers aspect of it. Like, the thing that always drags me back is seeing a new skill they reveal during spoiler season and then, you know, wondering how I can fit all the gears together to make that work. Mm. Um, But I'd say that, like, I kind of agree that there is... Uh, a level of atmosphere that that game loses because there's such a focus on the mechanical gameplay. Um, Diablo 2, I think, hits a nice middle ground where there's not enough 
you know, number crunching and messing around that it pulls you out of the immersion. And the gameplay has this, like, speed to it that allows you to maintain the immersion, especially when I was getting onto the higher difficulties and I was having to go a bit slower and be careful around corners, that kind of thing. Um, I felt that I was getting the feeling that I got from Diablo 1, where I was this guy in this really scary basement trying to work through. And I was looking at the, the footage from Diablo 3, and the thing that always, always sticks out to me first is how lit up everything is in the It looks third like game. Overwatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not that it's not, like, everything, even when stuff is... Like, if you're in a cave or it's at night and things are dark, it's like they've pumped the gamma levels up so you can see everything anyway. Um, Whereas in Diablo 2, there is crushing black all around you and you can see, like, a couple of meters around your character. And it's just so much more immersive and creepy and dark and spooky. Uh, I just, I love it so much. Like, the, the atmosphere... Um, and the way it plays into this narrative about, you know, demons from hell um, and necromancers and all that kind of thing just works so much better for me here with this much darker visual style uh, told through the lens of just a guy. Well, and I mean, there's a reason that light radius is a stat that you can get on gear because it it actually mattered. In Diablo 3, yeah, they threw that out the window. They're like, okay, but what if every character class no matter what they do, all of their skills just cause explosions. Let's just do that. <laughs> the other thing that I just want to touch on real quick, as you, you mentioned it, is um, I don't come back to Diablo 2 for the story. I will say that. I, I, I like the story, but I'm super biased about it, obviously. Uh, what brings me back is precisely what you said. It's, it's the mechanics. It's the gameplay. It's the optimizing and building a new character you know in like a new ladder season or something like that like that is that's kind of the hook that ends up bringing folks back all the time it's not it's not going to be the story that's kind of a one and done thing i think Mm. yeah so with that i guess we could start talking about that a bit well let's let's have a music break uh first um because you know we've been going for a little while now um what what did you guys think of the music uh we'll start with we'll start with you james what what were your thoughts on the music? Um, and do you think it did a better job than Diablo One? Um, I still don't think that there was a song I liked more than just the normal Tristram theme, um, which I was very happy to hear when I visited the town again, <laughs> um, during Act One. Um, but I thought it was good. Like I I enjoyed the ones that played when you were down in the caves. Um, I liked the music that they used in Act Five, um, up on the mountain as well. Um, I thought it was pretty decent. Although I still can't pick out a track I liked more than that one track from the first game. So um, I I thought it was a bit more mixed than Diablo 1. Like, I particularly liked the music in Act 1 and Act 4. Um, Act 2 and 3 were kind of forgettable for me. And Act 5, interestingly, interesting that you liked it, because I thought that it was almost a bit too triumphant in, in how it sounded. It was a bit too upbeat. And... What I wanted from this game was the more subdued, melancholic atmosphere that it conveys in um in the earlier acts. So I thought the music was good, and the ones I liked, I really liked. But uh, overall, I I thought it was a it was a mixed bag. Uh, particularly the ones in the desert area, I didn't really enjoy that much. It felt that they went for a generic kind of 
uh, I don't know, Middle Eastern sound instead of doing something that was better suited to the specific atmosphere that Diablo 2 was trying to convey. It's an interesting take on that. I was going to say that it, it hurt it hurt me a little bit that you said that you thought that Act 2 was like boring in the music department. I always I've always really liked the backing track for Loot Golane, actually. Mm-hmm. Um but you in in a way, I think you are right though, that it it did kind of just go with, you know, generic Middle Eastern sound. Um but then again, this is a game I've been living in for like twenty years, so I'm probably a little biased. <laughs> Um, but actually I have to hundred percent agree that the soundtrack from Diablo one is superior. I, it just is e- every one of those tracks is iconic. It's atmospheric to a fault. It's just dripping with dread and you can't, I don't care what you try to do like, and I'm not trying to knock the Diablo two soundtrack at all because I think it's fantastic. I think it, it does exactly what it needs to do. You know, it fits where it needs to fit. Um, It's usually not very overbearing with perhaps the later acts being a little bit of an exception, as you mentioned. Um, But you just can't beat that original Tristram theme. That's like perfection Mm. as far as I'm concerned. I thought, um, yeah, the one that really stood out to me was the wilderness track in Act 1, which is just the the track you hear when you're roaming the overworld in Act 1. And Mm. I thought that it... It had a wonderful sound to it, and I can't. I mean, maybe it's because I've I've heard that one the most, you know, because I've rolled <laughs> new characters when I was younger and everything. Sure, but that one stood out to me. Was, was there was there a particular track you'd like us to play, Shane? Your dealer's choice. What what should we play for our music break? Ooh, jeez. Um, wow, you're putting me on the spot with that one. All right, you know what? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go against the grain then, and I'm gonna say the 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 track for Luke Gallane in Act Two. All right, so this is the uh, the Luke Galane theme, guys. Hope you enjoy.
Alrighty, so that was Luke Galane. Um, let's get back into it. So we're going to be talking a bit about the gameplay now, finally. There was a couple of changes from the first game. I think the, the, the biggest one for me was the addition of extra slots for potions and uh, the addition of the stamina bar. Um, you know, a vastly enhanced skill system, the removal of random spell tomes. Where did you guys want to start in terms of gameplay? I think the place to start, we should talk a little bit about how this game just functions on a moment-to-moment -moment level, because that's how you're going to be interacting with this game mostly when you first start. And then later on, we'll delve more into the RPG aspects of the game that kind of uh, more influence how the gameplay plays later on. So for those who haven't played these kinds of ARPG games before, they're isometric games, they're top-down perspective. When you first get into Diablo 2 Lord of Destruction, I don't know if it does this in the remaster, but it gives you this fucking bizarre half 3D perspective. That should be the first <laughs> thing you turn off. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. There's I do, some weird, yeah. The characters look like they're from pop-up books. It's, it's very disconcerting. I thought I downloaded a corrupted version of the game at first. Like <laughs> It looks so bad so turn that shit off make it look good um and what you you basically control your character by clicking around the screen um you click on enemies to attack them and you've got uh two skills that you can put on your uh on your two mouse buttons on your left and right click uh using the function keys lets you select which of those two attacks you want on them but you can't just press a button to use a skill which is what happened in most ARPGs. After that, you only have two active clicks to use abilities. So what you do is you move from screen to screen through randomly generated environments. You dodge moving around enemies, either shooting them with spells, range attacks, or melee attacks. You use your abilities to supplement your damage. You use potions to heal any damage you take. You murder everyone. You take the loot which spits out of their bodies. You take that loot back to town, sell it, and rinse and repeat. So it's an action RPG. You're moving around the map, killing everything in your wake, trying to avoid taking damage and trying to deal damage. I think this is something that I'll ask James because obviously we don't have your experience with the genre that you do, Shane. How did this game feel when you first started playing and did it feel better to you at first than Diablo did, particularly with that run that, that you get with your stamina bar? Yeah, so I did notice immediately that just like Diablo 1, Blizzard did an excellent job making you know the feeling of hitting monsters really good. Um, the sound effects from just bonking people on the head is fantastic. Um, so the actual game feel, you know, in combat was really good to me. Um, I had like a big curve of enjoyment out of the stamina and run bar um, as I, you know, got to understand it a bit better over the course of the game. Um, and I would say that it was actually the number one most impactful difference to the gameplay from Diablo 1 for me overall. Um, so for those of you who don't know, on the surface you have a stamina bar and when you press run you run and it consumes stamina. Um, so uh, you know quality of life, the, the level design in this game is a lot more spread out than it was in Diablo 1, so being able to get around quickly a bit of nice quality of life. And originally I you know tried to use that a lot um, and basically had it on always during Act 1 on the normal difficulty. And then at some point in Act 2, I started dying a lot, and I couldn't work out why. And I did a bit of research, and something I found out was that if you're sprinting 
the game actually ignores all of your all of the the calculations that go into whether an enemy can hit you or not and it just makes the enemy hit you so with my paladin um, that had a shield that normally would block 60% of attacks, uh, I was getting a hit by 100% of everything while running. And from there, I started learning how to strategically use run instead, because in a lot of these ARPGs, I find that the number one most important stat is movement speed, you know, more than damage, mm. more than anything, especially in something like Path of Exile, where, you know, endgame, you're moving around at light speed and you're barely seeing the enemies on screen as they die. Um, in Diablo 2, there actually is a huge downside to going fast with the sprint button. So I found that as opposed to a lot of other ARPGs, my gameplay ended up being a lot slower when there was a lot of enemies around. Although, you know, against certain spellcasters, I would strategically speed up to avoid a fireball or something and then immediately slow back down to, you know, preserve my health pool. And I found the, you know, learning how to do this and micromanaging that ended up being a lot of fun by the end of the game for me. Is, um, is that something that you were aware of or a system you engage with, Shane? You know, honestly, I was about to say this is fascinating to hear like a, a relatively fresh perspective on this uh, because I so I have some thoughts about the stamina system <laughs> that I've had for a while. Uh, I I believe that the addition of the ability to run is fantastic um, for the size and scope of Diablo 2. I think it was a necessity. Um, I believe that there is something that was probably lost there however uh in that being forced to move at a very measured pace in diablo one really i believe added to sort of the overall tension and atmosphere of that game but i understand why they did it and i think it was the smart choice uh however i think the stamina bar is trash mm -hmm. it was it, there's there's no reason for it um if you're gonna add a run just let the player run like and and you can still toggle between run and walk for you know those strategic moments like you pointed out but the issue with the stamina bar is it's really really important and in your face at the beginning of the game and then eventually just by naturally acquiring better gear and leveling up your you know vitality which gives you more stamina as well as health uh eventually it's completely irrelevant you can run forever and never actually effectively run out of stamina. So it's it's like an interesting mechanic in theory, but in practice, it ends up kind of just falling to the wayside. And so I've always been of the opinion that it should have just never really been there in the first place. But you do bring up an interesting point about the uh, sort of the strategy behind walking versus running for, for hits, because I will say that you also do get to a point later on if you continue to play the game and you go into like the harder difficulties where you will never want to walk you'll always want to be on the move with pretty much any character regardless of what build you go with um you're just going to want to be moving pretty much as fast as possible and then eventually you get to the point where everybody gets an enigma and then you start teleporting everywhere but i'm sure we'll talk about that later <laughs> i actually agree with you about the stamina bar itself because almost all of my enjoyment from this system comes from um you know walking toggling between walking and run none of it came from managing that stamina and i actually kind of agree with you that if they just removed it and left in the toggle 
then the game would be better because it's just annoying, right? Like I was playing a paladin and at some point I put a point into an aura that massively increases my stamina and regeneration. And once I got the first point in that, you know, the bar ceased to exist, basically. Exactly. I, I find it interesting, James, because you mentioned this to me, this distinction between walking and running. But at least the way I was playing my character, I didn't ever really have a reason to walk. So mm -hmm. um, I was playing a trap assassin and the trap assassin is effectively a caster. But instead of casting spells from your body, you drop a static trap on the ground. It can't be attacked or anything. It's invulnerable. And the spells emanate independently from that trap. And I don't know, you might be able to shed better light on this, Shane, but the assassin mm. special weapons, because each and every class has a special weapon or wand that only, or, you know, some kind of item that is class specific. The assassin-specific mm -hmm. weapons for my entire playthrough were fucking trash. Like, absolute <laughs> dog shit. Like, the best ones sold for, like, 900 gold in Act 5. Like, that was atrocious. I, I didn't find a single assassin weapon that added to my skills until Act 5, and by it wasn't even a skill I was looking for. So attacking didn't really matter for me all that mattered was moving fast in my positioning so i i didn't ever have a reason to really avoid damage by walking and blocking with a shield i was i was just running around like a madman uh basically staying out of range of enemy attacks and dodging enemy projectiles well i mean especially playing as a trap assassin your your claws are essentially just stat sticks at the end of the day yeah. right because you're not trying to actually melee anybody um, but you're also, your experience with that, I think is pretty common. <laughs> uh, that's part of that, you know, RNG that goes into the stat generation when items drop is that particularly for a class like that, that you're playing, all you really care about is does this boost my primary stat attributes and does it give me a bonus to the skills that I actually give a shit about? And it sounds like you just got the short end of the stick on that one. I, I just thought it might be an assassin specific thing because I found so many uh, you know, class-specific items that boosted skills for every other class in the game, but the assassin, <laughs> I felt like got I got nothing, not nothing at all, and I was gambling at every opportunity I could get. So I was pretty sad. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a yeah, it's not an assassin-specific thing. I mean, I one of the characters that I rolled up recently was a, a necromancer, mm -hmm. and I was trying to roll uh, specific stats on on like a grim wand uh, to use and. I could not, for the life of me, get one that gave me the bonuses I wanted. And that's even going to, you know, the NPC in Act 2, Drognan, who sells wands and just making games over and over and over again to, like, re-roll his inventory. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me forever to find one that was even halfway decent, so. Yeah, it took me a while to get, like, the weapons I got. So my character, when I started my Paladin, because I didn't know you know, what skills were good or what were bad in Diablo 2. Um, I just wanted to pick a, you know, a skill that I wanted to pick. So um, I picked, is it Holy Fire? The, the one that is a big aura of flame around you and also boosts the damage on your weapon by a significant amount. Um, and that was the primary skill I used up until Act 4, where it started falling off very hard and I had to respec into, I think it was Blessed Hammer was what I went with. 
Um, so wait a minute. You did that blind, like as in, like you didn't research anything. No, no, no. I no, no. When I did the respec, I did a bit of research, um, and I ended up okay. in Blessed Hammer because because <laughs> I was gonna say like, yeah, you you picked the right progression right there. <laughs> oh really? No, because I thought I'd screwed it up. Because Holy Fire, you know, at the point when I respect when I was in Act Four, what was happening was. Okay, actually, before we go into this, I have to make a big disclaimer about my experience with this game because I'm a fucking dumbass, okay? Um, <laughs> and I need to be open with that now. Um, you know how you can equip a skill on your attack and on your right click? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't realize you could change your auto attack to another spell until I was in Nightmare. Like, I beat the whole game with just one skill. Because I'm a dumbass. Um, so it's either terrible or like the best humble brag ever. I'm not sure which. <laughs> Let's go with both. Let's go with both. <laughs> so at that point, I had because what I was doing was in Act Four. I had Holy Fire on, and I dumped all my points into that. And so I would sit there blocking a lot, waiting for the small enemies to die. And then if there was a, you know, because the pack. The packs in this game are usually comprised of a lot of swarm enemies and then one important enemy. I would switch to a bow, and because Holy Fire put gave like 300 damage to my normal attacks, um, I would like one-shot the, the elite from, and then walk into the fray and just hit things with my big strong attacks. And at that point in Act 4, it would take me maybe like 8 hits on a normal enemy, including misses, to kill them. And then when I respect, I would click Holy Hammer or Blessed Hammer once and the whole pack would die. Because uh, I was, I could not progress through Act 4. And at that point, that's when I looked up a guide and was like, oh, this skill doesn't scale very well. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's why I mentioned that, that you went from Holy Fire to, uh, to a Hammerdin, because that's, that's, that's actually a really common progression and i I was gonna be super impressed if you just kind of fucking divined that on your own no no the holy fire thing i was like oh damage in an area that's funny i can kill everything without doing anything that was that was the small brain logic i was using for that um (laughs) and no it totally works but let me i want to ask it would have been a lot better if i had zeal on my left click instead of Ah, there it is yeah that's (laughs) what i missed there it is okay so in at the end of Act Four and through Act Five, just so you guys know, so the Paladin has the, these auras, um, and one of them is a big damage increase. It gives you like like level one. It gives you like sixty percent increased damage, and I was so confused by why this skill was a thing because you could only have one skill on at once. So. This is just worse than Holy Fire, because Holy Fire buffs your damage too. And then what I realized, in quotation marks, is that if I cast Blessed Hammer and had like five hammers out, I could swap to the aura to make the damage of the the hammers better. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I realized you could have two skills and felt like a huge dumbass. Uh, you, you just have that aura on and Blessed Hammer on another slot. It's like, uh uh yeah no and and so i think i'm i that is wild that you were playing basically relying on holy fire and shooting things with arrows as a paladin that blows my mind <laughs> i'm i i'm I, you know what i'm happy that you did that because it's so I, I don't funny. think i would have ever yeah <laughs> i just and the thing is is like it's it's a whole new thing for me right because 
being so entrenched in this for so long, I'm just so used to a lot of the same builds. It's yeah. like, yeah, okay, hammered in, great, whatever. When I hear somebody playing a paladin with a bow, I'm like, what the what? <laughs> so, so James, sorry, there's something I don't understand. So you knew that you could change skills by like pressing the function keys, right? Yes. Do auras like? Do you need to have them up on your skill bar at all times? It, is there anything stopping you from going cast F two cast? F3 cast? You like, can only have one aura active at a time. That's okay, sure, right. Okay. Yeah, well, you do, you do need to switch, because that's what I was doing, was I had Blessed Hammer on F... Like, oh, I moved all the skill binds down to, like, QWE. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would go Q, you know, click Blessed Hammer three times, and then while they were spinning around, tap W to activate the damage aura to give the ones that were already in the air the damage aura. I see. That's right. yeah. That's what I was doing, which is a lot less practical than how you're actually supposed to do it, which is putting the hammer on left click. <laughs> All right, I've got I've got another question for you guys. So this was one of our criticisms of Diablo One. I want to see if you guys feel any differently about it, and that's potions. Uh, so when I was playing this game, I would say about half my inventory was filled with potions. And I don't know if that mm-hmm. was a consequence of me being effectively a caster, but um, basically I would be running through just chugging potions like a madman. Do you think this is good gameplay? Do you think that what other games have done and limiting your number of potions is better? Or do you think it's just a different way of doing things? I think it's bad and I think it's always been bad. Yeah, I think uh, there is a better way to do this for sure. This is like so tedious the way it is now. Absolutely. I, I feel like so it made more sense. I won't say that it was the perfect solution, but I think it made more sense in Diablo one just because if if for nothing else, just by virtue of the gameplay as a whole being a little bit slower. Right. It's a little bit more methodical. Also, you die. Oh, my God. Those la- latest stages without potion chugging. I don't know how you meant to get. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so with Diablo two, the pace of the game picks up exponentially and so just pounding potions is actually just common so and it's it's doubly so with casters because you are constantly chugging for mana now eventually you'll get to a point where you again don't need that because you've built your character with gear that will just give you passive mana regen Mm -hmm. and so suddenly potions don't matter but no i think it's always been terrible game design i've never liked potions Honestly, it's one of the things, because I don't want to totally shit on Diablo 3, because I've put an insane amount of time into that game, and actually, I think it's a decent ARPG for what it is, um, if it was not called Diablo, but that's a different discussion. (laughs) But one of the things that I think they did extremely well was redesigning the potion mechanic in that you just have one potion, it's on a cooldown, and it's more of an emergency button than anything, because you get health globes that sort of just naturally spawn from killing enemies and so you can be more strategic about picking those up rather than having to basically waste a bunch of inventory space on potions i actually think that was a smart design choice yeah i actually like that system of potions the best out of all the rpgs i've played path of exile system where you have like five potions and they constantly get charges from killing enemies um and the end result is that you put a popsicle stick on four on four keys and you just mash all four constantly (laughs) i think is also terrible but i still think it's better than what is here um I, i i really don't like the way potions work particularly like 
they even had the foresight like they even they clearly understood that it wasn't very good in Diablo 1 because they made the improvement of giving you better belts that let you put in more potions um in order to hold more but it's still not enough even with you know a triple belt I still had half an inventory of potions until um as a paladin I got a bunch of skills that let me regen health and mana I think the real problem yeah. is when you run out of the potions on your belt and so then you open up your inventory and you're dealing with two-thirds of your screen <laughs> while you right-click on the potion. And listen, there is an element of dexterity involved there. Like I, when I was fighting, I think it's called Duriel, the boss at the end of Act 2 yes. that has the thing. Mm-hmm. I was just like, that That was a very frantic fight for me because I had my inventory screen up. I could see half the screen. I was trying to move around the screen, drop traps and use potions from my inventory all at the same time but does that add up to like an enjoyable gameplay experience or is it cookie clicker with extra steps i mean the other option is you open up a town portal go there fill up again i and did then that come as back well. and resume yeah <laughs> that was which that was I stage also, two <laughs> which i also think is equally bad gameplay it's like it feels really cheesy it's like you're not actually beating the boss but it feels like how you have to play it is, and and honestly, Duriel has always been a giant difficulty spike. It's never something that they've smoothed out. Honestly, I kind of wish there'd be something they'd do in the remaster, but I doubt that they will. Um, but that's that's the accepted strategy for almost every single character build is when, and I do this every time, is I will fill my entire inventory with health potions and then pray that that's enough to survive the encounter. And is that good gameplay? No. I don't think so. I think it's a poorly designed boss, frankly. Um, you're basically just running around a very small arena trying not to get hit and frantically pounding potions the entire time. And, you're, and your follower is useless too because they'll die in like one or two hits. Yep. You know, so... Listen, let's, let's dive right into this because this is the, the main question I have when talking about all this stuff. Does Diablo 2 have good moment-to-moment gameplay? If we if we imagine, and obviously this isn't exactly fair, but just, just as a thought experiment, if we strip out the RPG stuff that is present in the game temp- temporarily, and we think about this game as an action game, moving around, killing enemies, using your potions to heal, using your abilities skillfully, positioning yourself, etc., etc., do you guys think that that is an enjoyable gameplay experience? Is, the, is this game fun? To, to play on a moment-to-moment level, or do you think it's kind of a little simplistic and repetitive, or somewhere in between? Okay, so as a new player to Diablo 2, my opinion is that if we are talking about normal difficulty, my answer to this is a hard no, it is not fun. Um, but after starting on Nightmare and getting through Act 1 and a bit of Act 2, uh, my opinion on this has basically flipped. Um, because the difficulty of the enemies is enough now that it is engaging without all the other stuff on top of it. Like, when I was playing through normal, and I, I have I have this problem with basically all ARPGs, is that you have to play through all of this boring shit at the start to get to the fun part. And, you know, <laughs> may, maybe, maybe the counter-argument to this is yeah, but look, James, you were a dumbass who didn't know you could use two skills. Clearly, you needed that normal difficulty <laughs> to figure the game out first, right? Like that, that, that. I think that's a fair counter argument. But for me, the moment-to-moment gameplay only truly became fun 
once I got to Nightmare. And in Nightmare, the game changed completely for me. Um, and I don't know if it's like this for everyone, but suddenly um, we were talking before about how there's a stat called White Radius, how far you can see around your character. And to me, that was a complete non-stat at the start of the game. Now, you know, when you, you go around a corner and there's a bunch of elite enemies that can two hit you, it's terrifying not being able to see very far around your character. Like, whereas before, you know, enemies barely touched me. It, it didn't matter. Now when I'm sneaking through the monastery basement, you know, I'm checking around the corners, using the run to get information. Um... When there's enemies, I'm trying to use the environment to kite them and doorways to block line of sight. I wasn't doing any of that during the normal playthrough, and it was my biggest criticism of the game going from Diablo 1, where I always used doorways and things to block line of sight, was that Diablo 2 didn't seem to make you use any of that at all, and I hated it. Um, but on Nightmare, I've had to use that stuff constantly, and the enemy design is usually such that uh, it kind of reminds me of Doom in a way, in that um, packs of enemies, which I think in ARPGs it's common to refer to them as packs rather than individual monsters, are usually comprised of a few different types of enemies that create an encounter that's more than the sum of its parts. For example, in Act 1, you fight these normal enemies that just hit you, and then later they introduce a second enemy, which is kind of a, a necromancer shaman. So if you don't kill him first, he'll just continuously bring the little ones back to life, which creates this like idea of target prioritization. When you're a nightmare and those little enemies can realistically kill you on their own, getting to those you know, important targets is more difficult and like kiting around the environment becomes fun and it becomes this little mini puzzle game where you're using your run and all that stuff to, you know, try to get through a room. On the easy difficulty, I didn't get any of that and my gameplay experience was like basically walking forward and attacking for like 20 hours. It was really quite boring. Yeah, I would say the other thing that kind of ups the ante once you get past normal as well is they start introducing the concept of, you know, um, elemental immunities and yep. resistances much more than you would see in normal at all. Actually, I think there's very few, if any, instances of that there's, in normal. There's a few unique enemies that uh, have, uh, mm. have those resistances, but yeah, you're right for the most part. Yeah, and you'll start getting like uh, the not not uniques, but the elites, elite packs that have those kind of modifiers. They and have a like really suddenly... scary modifiers on Nightmare. Like <laughs> they really of, do. Yeah, one of the, the thing that made me love the game, like during this part, was I walked into a room, and maybe like ten minutes before I'd finally leveled up. Um, is it salvation? Whichever paladin skill it is that eats the souls of the slain to give you health and mana. And I felt mm. like I no longer need mana potions because I just get so much of it for free now. Um, and I walked into this room and I encountered a blue pack that had the modifier does extra extra strong mana burn on hit <laughs> oh god yeah and in this game when you lose your when your stamina or your mana bar fully deplete it i think there's like a little window where before they start regenerating again um so mm. i was like locked out of my mana pool and had to like uh get out of the room 
wait for it to regen and then like kite them around the room because I was too stubborn to just go buy some mana potions. And that was fun. <laughs> um, and all those kinds of enemies, you know, you know, my paladin had these skills. I had all these auras that greatly increased my different elemental um, resistances and I never needed to use them at all during normal, whereas here... Um, I had to strategically turn on the resistance auras against certain strong, you know, enemies. Uh, it's just so much more interesting. Yeah, well, and part of that is also because they straight up just drop your resistances when you get into Nightmare mm. by something like 60%, I think it is. Yeah, it's. I think it's 30% per difficulty or 60%. Yeah, Path of Exile does that as well. Um, so I, I was kind of like on the ball with knowing how valuable um resistance gear would be later on so for mm -hmm. my i i played through just normal I, I did a playthrough of the game from start to finish and i have to say that i kind of found it very boring uh yeah. so so my trap assassin i had um a couple of buffs that i applied applied to myself which were kind of like value points that i grabbed um i saw that there was some more on that tree that potentially could have made the combat a bit more varied but i didn't feel i could waste those points the rest i put into my lightning traps uh there were a couple of different ones but i mostly relied on two which were the uh like the burst lightning one you know when shock nova or something where it shoots the things across the floor and then the regular lightning which is kind of like a faster stream of sniping attacks and I would vary between those two depending on the situation. But for the most part, it was just running away from enemies with the bonus move speed I'd got from my gear, dropping my traps near the enemies, using potions, rinse and repeat endlessly. So it sounds like from what you guys are saying that when the game gets to Nightmare, you need to vary your tactical approach because of resistances and also your increased vulnerability means that you have to play a lot more carefully instead of like a complete sped like I was. <laughs> but, but I have to say for for normal, if you if you evaluate this game on the basis of one playthrough, which I think is reasonable, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later, I think the gameplay is not very good. Like it's it's um it's very simplistic. There's not much to it tactically. And you're not vulnerable enough most of the time, even against the end game bosses, uh, because most of your problems are solved with potion chugging. You can just potion chug your way through uh, any problems or most problems that stand in your way. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I mean, in in my experience, normal is kind of an afterthought now when I play. Like, it's just something you have to get through because mo actually i'm not going to say all but the vast majority of character builds regardless of what you go with are not really going to start coming into their own until you've gotten past normal like as a minimum and so from a gameplay perspective that's kind of the thing that a lot of people tend to talk about right it's just like oh yeah like frozen orb sorceresses are fucking amazing and like you know uh whatever like javazons are great for like farming the cow level and blah blah, blah. that's not stuff you're going to do in just a typical normal playthrough you're not actually going to see the full potential of almost any of the character classes in this game by just playing through once on normal difficulty like for the story right I, I think that is kind of a problem it depends i guess it depends on what kind of player you are and how like experienced in the genre you are like some people are going to jump into uh normal and you know be challenged enough and find it engaging and then there's some people like you know 
Patrick and I, from the sounds of it, that jump into normal and just spend a lot of the time kind of bored because it's not challenging enough. Hell, I was playing with a gimped half character until Nightmare because I'm a dumbass <laughs> and I found it too easy and boring up until that point. And at that point, the game became really fun. Like it, it was like a switch flipped. But there is like, I guess people do have to know about that going in, that there is this like upfront cost that you have to pay to get to the fun part. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And again, it's it's hard for me not to go back to this because this is totally not your your show's jam because you guys yeah. talk more about yeah. like how it is now. Yeah. And somebody coming to this now, yeah, 100%. If it was someone that was coming to this like when it first came out, that's a very different discussion. But with all of the improvements to the action RPG genre that have happened since then, it is kind of a big ask to have someone sit down and play this game and be like, okay, it's like, it's like the shit that I hear from people when they're just like, oh yeah, well, you know, you should play this Final Fantasy game. I mean, like it doesn't get good for like the first 30 hours, <laughs> but if you can make it through that, man, it's amazing. I'm like, why would I do that? Mm. And it's, it's, it's almost sort of a similar thing here when you really think about it. I'm kind of used to this thing because... I always played MMOs and they were exactly the same. You needed to get your character to the max level before the fun part of the game started, like in WoW or, you know, even in Path of Exile, every time I roll in a character, I have to suffer through the story, which I is the number one thing that stops me making lots of characters is because I'm so bored of doing the story over and over again to get to the fun part of the game, which is the end game map grind. Um, but like, is that good game design though? No, it should let you skip it. Like, if, if the end game is where the game starts getting good, start me at the beginning of the end game. Bang. Immediately. Or I would just argue that maybe you should design a game that isn't shitty until the very end. Like, yeah, you know? Yes. I mean, that was one of the issues I always had with, with WoW. Like, I played WoW from the beta up until Lords of Draenor, I think. And, like, that was always the issue. It's just like, I, I really want to enjoy the journey. And at some point, I felt like that got lost. And and it's the same thing with a lot of these games where it's just like, nah, don't care about any of this stuff. Like we took all this time to write all this quest text, but nobody gives a shit about that. Just skip through it so you can get to the end game. <laughs> I, I think the other thing that's interesting is, so Diablo 2 is like, I call it the linchpin of the ARPG genre because it's the thing that has influenced the most. Uh, it, it, Diablo 2 is the template from which every so many games have evolved from and stolen entire systems from. And I think oh, sure. that one of the ways in which games have evolved is they've evolved this action side of the game. If you play Bastion or Hades, if you play um, even something like Enter the Gungeon or Isaac, a lot of these games have like dodge rolls and they've got more precise projectiles to dodge and they've got all these other things that make the intrinsic moment to moment gameplay more interesting i have to get on your case for using isaac as an example here i do not think that it's you know base <laughs> gameplay is that much better than this game yeah i i strongly disagree with that i think that playing through isaac without taking damage with all of the projectiles that shoot out particularly as you start getting into the end game stuff is actually quite enjoyable um that all comes from enemy design, though, right? Like, yes. it's less about what you can do as your character. Yeah, absolutely. And it's absolutely. more about the game, yeah, having well-designed enemies. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, you could even say the same of Dark Souls. Like, Dark Souls, most of the interesting um, parts of that action gameplay doesn't come from your, 
your inputs because it's actually quite limited, like you roll and hit. But the enemy design is interesting in such a way that the action is enjoyable on a moment-to-moment gameplay level. But I don't think Diablo 2 really has either of those things. I think that, except some of the casters towards the end, I, I found some of the casters uh, in Act 4 and 5 a bit more interesting to interact with. Yeah, I'd cite enemy design as one of this game's, like, it does some good things. Two of the enemies that I really liked was A, those necromancers that forced you to do target prioritization. It's not a very complex thing, like, you just need to pick out the enemy that's important to kill, but it just stops me autopiloting enough to be enjoyable. And the second one was those like those tiki torch warriors in act three that shoot the flame breath Mm. those things uh killed me very quickly if i did not you know (laughs) pay them heed but to me it's like those two enemies were the ones that i liked and every other in the enemy in the game and every other enemy in the game kind of blurs together because it doesn't you know force you to react to it enough like even the boss fights uh, particularly the boss fights, I found that I could just face tank them and attack them while chugging potions. Like, they don't require much of you to react to until you get to Nightmare. Um, but at that point, even simple enemy designs are fun because you've you got to start kiting. <laughs> yeah, and I think hitting that hitting that threshold in Nightmare is what will make or break your character build. Like, you will know as soon as you start Act 1 of Nightmare if you totally hosed up your build or not. <laughs> And do you lose access to the respec if you don't use it in Act 1? Is that how it works? Or do they stack between acts? No, it'll always be there. You would just have to, like, go back and and reuse it. Although, fun fact, respecing was never an an originally part of this game. I mean, it it is now, but that was something that was introduced in a very, very late patch of Lord of Destruction. Um, like years and years after the fact for the vast majority of this game's lifespan respecking was never an option so Mm -hmm. you were just you picked your build and you stuck with it and if you screwed it up then you better roll a new character you know guys i think it's about time we started to get into the meaty part of this uh episode where we get to talk about the rpg systems yes (laughs) but uh let's let's have another music break before we do We'll go. We'll go with wilderness. I mean, it's a song that plays at the start of the game, but to me, it's um, it's the one that does the best job of um, of capturing Diablo 2's particular atmosphere. So this is wilderness.
Alrighty, so that was Wilderness. Um, let's get to talking about the fun part of the game, the bit that I've been waiting for for this past hour and a half, um, which is the character customization and the RPG side of the game. Um, so for me, and I, I don't think it's the same for you, Patrick, and I don't know about you, Shane, but this is the thing that always gets me to play these games, um, is this idea of... Uh, customizing a character, um, picking a skill, and then trying to almost solve the puzzle of how to make that skill work. It's the reason I keep coming back to Path of Exile, which is like my spreadsheet simulator of choosing, um, and why I can never ever ever get into Diablo 3 every time I try it, because the game just does not have that level of personalization that these other games do. Um, so coming into Diablo 2, and you know, partly because of the limited challenge in normal, I was actually a bit disappointed with the skill tree system in this game at first. I think the main issue of it for me was that, you know, these games tend to have this idea that you'll end up with one main skill and a couple of utility skills, and then most of your you know, gearing and talent tree decisions will generally go into that one skill. Um, but for me, other games in the genre, even though you're kind of investing into one skill, um, you're not doing so in a linear way, which makes each decision point interesting. Diablo 2's skill tree is arranged kind of like, it's like a list It's of rows that have, you know, arrows going from skill one skill to the other so you, there's prerequisite skills um and you can put multiple points into the same skill um there aren't a lot of passives on the tree although some do have some classes do have access to them like the necromancer uh with necromastery but i guess for me the number and something that makes diablo 2's system different from others is that for example if i level up holy fire it will have this text at the bottom of the talent tree um, selection that says, if you also level up the fire resistance aura, every point in that will also give this skill, you know, 18% damage. And my biggest problem with the skill tree was that the increase in power was basically linear with every single point that you put into it. So every single point that I put into uh, fire resistance was always, you know, 18%. Every single point that I put into, there's another skill was always like 6%. And then, you know, every point I put into holy fire was that flat amount plus the radius. So basically, I never had to choose two. I never had a, a difficult decision to make between two choices. It was always this one is just better than the other in all cases. And I found that made uh you know the level up decisions to be a bit bland to be honest which is interesting because the decisions were actually more bland before they introduced that synergy system because that wasn't always there and so what ended up happening is when you started putting skills points into certain skills to to what you said earlier a lot of them function mostly as just prerequisites mm. they're not skills that will take you into the end game or anything like that and so it very much felt like those points were wasted because you just needed to spend them to get to a better skill. And so their solution, in air quotes, to that 
was the synergy system where it's like, well, okay, listen, we know that you're going to have to put X number of points into this skill to get to the next one. So let's at least make that worth your while by, you know, allowing it to add a X percentage damage boost to this other skill or something like that. But honestly, that also introduces its own problems because to your point, you kind of start to feel like you have even more of an illusion of choice than before because now it's not well i have this whole plethora of skills to choose from when anything i pick is going to be fun it's if you want to use this you have to pick these skills because you're going to get a damage boost from them so why would you not do that and you kind of get railroaded down very specific paths yeah um to me a good talent tree or skills tree system um you know they can accomplish different things but generally i think the ones that i enjoy the most are the ones that make me feel like i'm working towards some kind of goal mm. um or they're like a puzzle that i'm trying to figure out oftentimes the skill trees will have like weird nodes in them that like on first glance you're not sure why they're good for example my favorite point ever is this um, this node in Path of Exile called Chaos Inoculation, um, which says you are immune to chaos damage. However, your max health is permanently one forever. You can never increase <laughs> it past one. And the first time I saw that, I was like, what the hell is this? Why would anybody ever pick this? And I was very naive, and now I realize that it's actually a very powerful node, because if you stack Energy Shield, which sits on top of your health, um, it's actually really good because previously the only thing that goes through energy shield is chaos damage, which you're now immune to. So, mm. you know, my favorite skill trees have stuff like that, where as you play the game, you know, multiple builds, you, you find these builds that were always there, but you weren't good enough to see initially. And my other thing that makes them engaging to me is when there is a non-linear reward from each skill point you get and there are you know nodes that are much bigger than others like there's breakpoints so if you you know there's four in a line that give you plus two strength but then the fifth one gives you like plus 10 so you have to make this decision whether you invest five points to get the big bonus and then on average, you know, you get, you know, more than two per point, you know, that kind of thing. This game didn't really have any of that kind of stuff for me. I never felt like the skill tree was a puzzle for me to figure out. It was just like, choose which skill you want to use for the whole game. And to be honest, I don't like Diablo 3's system, but I actually think in some ways it was better than this because the kind of players that just want to pick a skill and go with it can. It was really only on Nightmare when I started having to take utility skills to solve specific problems that I started to come around a bit and like it because they're actually each character does have a lot of tools on there and the game kind of then becomes about, you know, taking the tools to solve your problems. And then that is something that I can get behind. I can see that. I think it's interesting because I almost take the opposite tact with that, I think, in that this is part of the reason why I find myself gravitating more towards Diablo 1 than 2 when I just want to sit down and, and play something. Because for as much as I love Diablo 2, and I do, anybody who's listened to our show is probably sick of hearing about it, honestly, but I have to prepare myself when I want to play Diablo 2. 
because I know <laughs> that if I don't do homework beforehand and look up an effective character build, I'm going to have a bad time. And to me, that is the hallmark of lackluster game design, right? In that I feel like I am required to go and do research before I even boot your game up. Because, to, you know, can you play through normal and basically do whatever the hell you want? Clearly, because we have a paladin with a bow. So that, you know, fine, that works. But if you're going to invest time into a character and play further than that and push into, you know, nightmare and hell difficulty, you're not going to be able to do that unless you go in with a very specific plan that's highly optimized. And some people totally love that and more power to them. That's fantastic. But to me, something that's going to give you a more flexible approach to to be able to make up for your failures to say like oh well you know what i've tried this skill turns out it's not working out the way that i wanted it to let me adjust these you know points or nodes or whatever around a little bit and let me try this instead to me that is is a better design overall and it's one of the things that like i said even though i i love diablo 2 more than most games that has always been a sticking point for me because I basically know exactly what my character is going to look like before I even give the character a name. Because if I don't, then I know that I'm going to be having essentially a suboptimal experience. Well, this is what um this is what like Torchlight and Path of Exile and all those later games do, right? They've got a skill point rebuy system as opposed to a complete respec option. Which means that if you screw something up for a cost, you can reclaim and mess around with it a bit more, mm. right? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm the opposite of you in this respect. See, to me, it's the research part of making a character that's the most fun part of a game, honestly. And I will love a game if I can spend a significant part of my engagement with it. Um, you know, when I'm at work on my lunch break, looking stuff up on forums on my phone, like if I can do that, <laughs> spend, you know, hours of looking stuff up and then still just have an acceptable character. That's the game I want to play, basically, because I want to feel like I earned, you know, my way through the game through good character planning and, you know, figuring things out. I used to be you. I used to be you. I, I did the exact same thing, and I would get such a kick out of just spending hours pouring through forum posts about, like, this, this is the most <laughs> optimal combination, and if you do this, then you'll get a 2% increase to your skills. I mean, hell, like I said, I played WoW forever, so that was, like, ingrained in me, right? And I don't yeah. know. At some point, I just got to this point where I'm just like, it feels exhausting. Like, I to, to your point yeah. about, like, earning your character... I, I want to feel like I earned it by making sensible choices while I'm playing, not basically taking information from somebody else who did the legwork for me. Yeah, and that's that's where I fall on this and where I will always fall. I I really don't like these systems where you have to commit to a thing beforehand based on a bunch of research. So Diablo 3 at launch versus Diablo 3 today are two very different <laughs> yeah. games. And I think that what Diablo 3 today does, it doesn't have a traditional skill tree. What it does is it gives you fucking everything to play with. It gives you a bunch of modifiers that it says, have fun, 
put all these skills together in whatever combination you like and you use the ones you like. And I think the thing I really like about that is, as Shane said, you learn while doing. You, when you're playing Diablo 3, you try shit out and you see if you like it or not. You see if it's the kind of thing you want. You try different combinations and you eventually probably settle on something that's pretty cool. But then maybe you get a piece of gear which synergizes the particular skill and you get to start playing with all this stuff again. And at no point in that process have you ever been required to look at a forum post. You just get to play the game and have all that experimentation and research while playing the video game. And to me, that is always going to be better than doing external research. for. Well, and I think you could probably argue, right, that on some level, you could also do that with Diablo 2, but it's, it's the matter of time investment. Like, if you were talking mm. to 14-year-old me, I'd be like, yeah, man, I'll I'll re-roll a character if I screwed this up. I don't care. I, I I got all the time in the world. I'm 14. Who the hell cares? But like me now, I'm just like, dude, I only have so much time to play video games. I do not want to invest 30 hours into a character to have that gut sinking moment when I realize that I have screwed the pooch and now I have to start from scratch. That is in no way fun to me, at least. Yeah, it's interesting because it is it is a matter of time, right? Because Let's say, Patrick, you know, you play like Binding of Isaac, right? You are, mm. because the game length, like each run takes maybe like an 40 minutes or something like that. You're very happy, you know, whenever you're given a choice of a bunch of items you haven't seen before to just pick one and see how it works out. And then if it doesn't, you know, for next time and you're fine because you just spent 40 minutes, right? Oh, on top of that, the game is deliberately vague with describing a lot of these items. In Like it just, you don't know what they do. You use, you have yeah. to use a lot of them to understand what the fuck they do. Yeah. Can I ask you guys, how different, is the gameplay intrinsically based on different builds you do and how many different kinds of gameplay actually result from builds because obviously i played through the game once i played through this trap assassin where i drop a bunch of stationary spells on the ground which do damage and then i avoid enemies do the different classes actually play drastically differently uh, depending on how you've built your character or is it a little bit same? Yeah, for, well, for example, let's contrast our play styles, right? Like you were an assassin and you sprinted around avoiding enemies while they walked into your traps. Um, as a paladin, I equipped a shield and then every piece of gear that said does an explosion when you take a hit, I equipped. And then my strategy was walk into the middle of enemies, tank a bunch of hits while going boom, and then they die. Um, and then, you know, that stopped working after normal. <laughs> um, but that was most of my experience <laughs> in normal, was like wading into packs of enemies, taking the hits, doing damage in an area around me. So, And, and Shane, do you think that that's true for like each and every character? And does each and every character have multiple play styles? They do. Uh, they are of varying effectivity i will say that but i think most most character classes have at least a, a couple of decently viable builds that tend to play differently i mean you can contrast you know like a hammerdin who basically walks around in a cloud of flying holy hammers and just mows everything down versus um a summoner necro who just kind of hangs back and sips pina coladas while all his skeletons decimate everything <laughs> um that's one of my favorites for the record 
Uh, and then you've got something like the Amazon, who's a very, you know, ranged character, whether it's bows or javelins. And so, and even those characters within themselves can have very different builds. I mean, even like, like I said, the Necro, you could go full summoner and just do nothing and just cast curses on stuff and let your minions take them out. Or you could go poison Necro and kind of just wait into the middle of things and drop poison clouds. Um, so I think that's one of the one of the strong suits of Diablo 2, especially in comparison to its predecessor, where there is a significant increase in character and build diversity. Now, if you were to compare that to games that have come after, I might argue that you know you're going to have even more options in in some of these follow-up games, but there still is a lot of a uh, lot of different flavors. I think. I don't know if this still works, but I remember one of the things I found when I was a kid. It might have been a specific version of Diablo 2, which is that the Barbarian Leap Attack was bugged and it had unlimited range at level 1. <laughs> I don't know if, I that know if that's still something works. you knew about. Yeah, so at level 1, you had unlimited range leap attacks. So you could leap across the screen. Really quick. And I remember playing that. Just, you just, yeah, you could just leap to any. The leap skill worked fine, but leap attack, where you targeted an enemy, unlimited range so you could just use so you just got a a weapon i uh, i think it's the skulls that you get mana back on hit mm-hmm. is that is that mm-hmm. right yeah so you just have a weapon with skulls in it and you just leap attack everything and every time you leap attack you connect and you get your mana back for your next leap attack isn't it really fun when you find that kind of stuff out like when you like this like really niche thing that you found all this stuff and you put it together and you make this like crazy machine. Isn't that just the most satisfying shit? But but James, when I played this game for the first time, how the fuck am I meant to do that? Well, you clearly did. <laughs> it was a happy accident. Well, for, for that one, for, for that for that for that one, I I saw it online and ah, tried it right, and is. I enjoyed it. But it's not something that I invented myself. What I'm saying is that is the way that most people are meant to engage with this game is for their normal playthrough, type into Google weird and funny Diablo 2 builds <laughs> and then go? Or are they meant to pick a character and then try to, you know, make make a build? Because I think that is the experience that most people will have when engaging with this game for a normal playthrough. And I think this is where our our discussion and criticism gets a bit warped because the lens that I'm interacting with this game and understanding this game is probably the one that most people don't deal with it. Most people who play Diablo 2 are probably signing up for multiple playthroughs, right? Most people who play Diablo 2 are probably even doing research, but that's not what i wanted to do when i played this game do do you think that means that i've approached this game incorrectly or do you think that it's just a different way of doing it's different right because that is that like you said that is so far removed from how i would approach playing these games like i would basically like i did jump into it blind for the first few acts but this isn't how i would play this game like i would look up a bunch of different characters and see how they played picked one that seemed cool and generally in this kind of game what i would do is i would pick the character that the least amount of people online played yeah well that made that generally because i like doing the research side of things that basically means that there's less information so i have to do more detective work to make it work basically um but that's just Mm -hmm. me but i imagine that a large number of players would 
you know, play the game the first time the way you did, though. I don't think you represent like a huge minority or anything. It's just that me and Shane probably didn't have that experience or it was so long ago we forget. Well, that, yeah, I was gonna say, that's the thing is yeah. like, I, I definitely <laughs> had that experience, but that was like 20 something years ago now. But I think yeah. it's definitely a valid experience. Yeah. hundred percent. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how normal difficulty seems kind of like a cakewalk. Honestly, I think that's on some level a, a tacit admission from the developers of just like, listen, we know that this skill tree system and everything is somewhat inscrutable and you're probably going to screw your character up uh, at least the first first time, but probably the first few yeah. times. So we're just going to make normal easy enough that you could make a totally like uh god bless anybody who tried to make a throw barbarian holy shit like they tried to make that a thing where they're just like we'll we'll give the barbarian a skill where you can throw things and if you put points into it he throws <laughs> things harder yeah that skill sucks and it's always sucked but you know there's somebody out there that rolled up a barbarian for the first time playing diablo 2 and they're just like what I can specialize in throwing axes at things. That's cool as hell. And then they probably made it through normal just fine. And maybe that was mm. it. But if they were to hit nightmare, they would immediately see like, oh, this is actually garbage. Yeah, I think that um, skill disparity is actually a big negative on this game. And mm. it is something that I hope they fix with updates because... It is very possible just to pick a trash skill. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if I'd recommend going in completely blind on this one, uh, unless you play a later version of the remaster that fixes this, because um, I think it is a significant issue. Is there actually a lot of depth in skill builds? Because for my character, I was like, my character makes lightning, let me pick all the lightning skills, and then grab some value points elsewhere. Like, it, it, are their skill builds deeper than that, depending uh, on what character I, you play? I don't think it's that incredibly deep. I think some of the classes, I looked through all their talent trees, have more interesting trees than others. Um, I think a lot of the builds are going to be you dump 90% of your points into this one skill and then take a few utility things. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's interesting stuff you can do. Like, I was really struggling in Act 3, and it was at this point that I started looking stuff up. And one of the things that made me persevere through Act 3 into Act 4 with just Holy Fire was that I found out in Act 5, enemies can drop these bows that do their shots in an explosion. And I figured that because Holy Fire gave me a 400 damage and attack, if I could make that area of effect, then I could actually make this work. And that's why I was suffering... <laughs> until i hit this wall and act four and respect but like i think there's interesting stuff you can do i just think it's a lot less than the modern you know options for these games like i think in all the modern arpgs you can do really crazy stuff and diablo 2 i'm not convinced that's there no it's it's not build diversity is much um more anemic compared to more modern games i mean even even its successor like for for all of diablo 3's faults and it does have plenty one thing that i think they finally nailed once well probably once reaper of souls rolled around honestly was just the sheer number of viable character builds that you can make if you look at any 
like I I've referenced him before, but if you're in the Diablo community, you probably know Riker. He's one of the big YouTubers in the space. And he always has um, lists of like tier lists for character builds for every season of Diablo three. And you look at those lists and there's a good 30 or 40 character builds that are varying degrees of viability, but still decent enough that you can play through a whole season of Diablo three pretty comfortably with those. And that, that in and of itself to me is a design achievement to have that many viable character builds. Whereas in Diablo two, you, you don't have nearly that many now with patch 2.4, fortunately uh, they're finally addressing some of that stuff to where they're kind of rebalancing a lot of the uh, lackluster skills. Like, actually, I, I think Throw was actually on that list, so I'm going to be interested to see how that turns out. But uh, That sounds like you're going to roll a Throw Barbarian. I kind of want to. I'm like. not going to lie. I kind of <laughs> want to. Like, I just want to hook them up with a bunch of, like, exploding potions and just see what happens. That's the skill the skill aspect of it. So let's talk about the other big, the big one, maybe even the biggest one, which is gear and gear progression. Mm. Because in many ways, these two things are interlinked. And in later titles, they are literally interlinked. And it starts to become difficult to distinguish between them, between the two. What do we think about the gear in Diablo 2, the rarity, the gear progression, um, how it facilitates builds? What, what's the deal with the gear in uh, Diablo 2? I would say that the itemization that they managed to pull off in Diablo 2 is not perfect, but very impressive and the reason i say that is because there are so for, for those of you that don't know um well first of all pretty much every arpg including even including things like borderlands and stuff like that copped this system from diablo 2 but you've got you know your your normal quality oh you've also got trash quality but we don't talk about those uh, normal, you've got magic, you've got, you know, rare, you've got set items, uniques, that sort of a thing. And in something like, again, Diablo 3, the itemization is garbage. So, like, magic and rare items basically might as well not exist because they're terrible uh, in almost every single case. Whereas in Diablo 2, it is actually very common for characters to run with just blue magic items in certain slots for a pretty significant portion of their character's lifespan just because of the uh, bonuses that you can get on them like plus to certain skills or plus all skills or things like that that uh, lower tier items are actually still viable for a much bigger cross-section of the game than they would be in in some some other games and that in and of itself i think is is an achievement yeah it's interesting because i think the gold standard for the difference between the rarities was actually almost nailed here in diablo 2 um because you don't want the rarities just to invalidate the previous one each one mm. needs to have a specific use and for me the gold standard and I'm hoping, Shane, that you can explain where magic items fit into this, because I can't figure this one out. But the gold standard sure. for me is that white items are basically used only at the start of the game. However, uh, can be extremely valuable for use in crafting. For example, later on in the game, you get the ability to add sockets to one piece of gear. 
And if you put a, you know, a rare item in, he'll add two sockets to it. And if you add um, a unique item or whatever, a legendary, he'll add one socket. But if you put a white item, he'll add all four sockets. And then you can re-roll the white item into a rare item. So white items, you won't be excited for their stats, but they can be incredibly valuable as crafting material. And this is the same in Path of Exile. So they still have value when they drop. And then rare items are your big stat stick items. They usually, you know, have a bunch of different modifiers on them that could be good or bad, depending on your build. Um, unique items will always drop the same. And these will, on average, be better than your rare items stat-wise and often provide completely unique effects that are unique to this one item. However, rare items have a higher ceiling. They can roll better stats mm. sometimes than these items. So even though you get a really special unique, if you get even luckier, you can get a super cool rare item. So there's this like balance between the tiers of the rarities that's kind of maintained. And I think that for a first attempt, Diablo 2 got shockingly close to the right approach here. Although I'm not entirely sure where magic items actually fit into this, because you, I, I just got the feeling they were a stepping stone to rares, to be honest. So I think in most cases they are, um, but... I think where they really tend to shine is those skill bonuses. That that seems to be the case in my experience, where I will hang on to a blue ring, for example, for far longer um, than you probably otherwise would have, simply because I managed to find one that rolled like, you know, plus two to all necro skills or or whatever, or a plus a bonus to the particular skills that I want to use, and that statistically is going to give me a much better boost in my gameplay than if I were just going to have like more of the sort of stat stick, you know, rare item. So I think magic items are a little bit more of an edge case in that way. I wanted to touch on real quick, though, the thing about the regular, the white items, because that one is interesting because honestly, the biggest draw of white items is the fact that you can bring them to Larzuk in Act 5 and he'll socket them for you. Um, and white, well, items themselves have different maximum numbers of sockets, depending on the type of item it is. And so he'll always give you the maximum number of sockets on a white item. Now, the reason that's important now in Lord of Destruction is because of rune words. And we couldn't possibly have a discussion about itemization without talking about rune, rune yeah. words. Because on one hand, they're amazing. And then on the other hand, they were actually incredibly detrimental to some of the itemization we were just talking about. Yes, um, because they're too good, right? Yeah, they're too good. That's actually the thing. Uh, so rune words were introduced in Lord of Destruction. They were not part of base Diablo 2. And essentially what you do is, you know, you find these rune stones that drop and they each have their own names like Um and Pull, Zod. No one's ever seen a legit Zod, I'm convinced of that. <laughs> and you socket them in a specific order into an item to create what they call a rune word. And if you do that correctly, then that item suddenly has this whole litany of bonuses specific to that rune word. So it's basically like you're fashioning your own unique item in a way. And they're great. They're actually build-defining items. Um, but the problem is that they're so powerful, um, by and large, 
that even at low levels of play, like if you go and look up a guide now for running any character, every single guide will tell you, you know, as soon as you get to, you know, the 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 tower in the Black Marsh, start running that thing over and over again in Act 1 because that's the best place to farm runes. Get these early runes and build yourself these early rune word items because they're going to last your character like well into Nightmare. And that's just the accepted way to go. And the argument for that is that suddenly now all of these other items, rares, magic items, even uniques, and even set items, we haven't even talked about that yet, get like objectively superseded by rune words. Yeah, I don't like this at all. Basically, I had this experience where somebody on our Discord mentioned that rune words exist, and I was like, oh, that's cool, and I looked it up. And then, you know, the first thing, w- it looks like every single character makes the stealth chest yep. and equips it and the lore helmet mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that shield um, that you get all three for for free. And that was my experience. I made those items and then, you know, I found one helmet better than lore. That was it. And then the other two have just been on my character for so long. It's like I have these slots that I can never get an item that's better and it's so boring because one of the real joys of this game is killing an enemy seeing something incredible drop and just getting this huge rush of dopamine when it's like a huge upgrade for you and the room words base level of power is just so high that on normal and i don't even know if if it's even that much better on nightmare that you can never find anything better they're just too good it's too easy to get the runes to equip them like i didn't farm for any of them i just got them and i have so many just sitting in my back like stash that it just invalidates all your early itemization it makes it so boring doesn't it invalidate gems as well like why would you ever put gems in a in an item when you can put rune words in there right for the most part yeah i agree with that see i think that rune words have a place in the game right like I think that you can make unique armor that has a very unique effect that you can build a whole character around. So, for example, let's say um, there is a chest piece that changes summon skeleton to summon cobras or something. Like, it changes the way you play the game. And therefore, if you want to play a cobra necromancer, you need this item to do that. So being able to deterministically acquire this item through rune words is a good thing. Where it falls down for me is when the rune words just give raw stat sticks that are better than everything else. Mm. If you can just get unique, weird, niche items out of it that are build enabling, I am perfectly okay with that because it means you don't have to farm you know, this one map a hundred times to get the item you need to play your character, you can just make the word and go. Yeah, um, yeah. That's where the balance is for me on this, but I don't think they hit that here. No. You know, to be fair, it was the first attempt at such a system, but it really pulled the itemization down for me. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think it did for most people. I mean, it it genuinely short circuits the entire gameplay loop at that point. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it kind of sucks like, cause they're fun for sure. But when, you know, basically every, every guy that you look at is just like, well, every single slot on your character that can be filled with a rune word, like a hundred percent do that. And then for the ones that can't like, Oh, I guess you could use this unique item or something. And that, you know, that, that doesn't feel great. 
uh, from a gameplay perspective. And the one thing which I think most Diablo 2 veterans, I suppose, would immediately call out as the biggest problem was the Enigma rune word. Because that's it's an armor rune word, which essentially gives any character the sorceress's teleport ability. And so suddenly, <laughs> everybody is required to have Enigma because it's the fastest way to move around maps because end game in Diablo mm. 2 is farming. You are trying to farm bosses as quickly as possible. And because the levels are randomly generated every time, um, which is neat from just like your sort of casual gameplay perspective. But if you want to just farm a specific thing over and over again, that's a pain in the ass. So what's the best way to get around that? Well, give every character teleport. And that's exactly what happened. And suddenly that one item is required for basically every end game character, regardless of class. Yeah, I actually had a staff drop with plus one to teleport on it. And like, that was the best thing ever um, <laughs> yeah. for me, because it was like hitting the jackpot. Uh, it, I did have a funny story about this, though, because um, the, the teleport had charges on it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so you needed to repair it every time to use it. So I took it to repair it after I'd exhausted it. And it cost me like it, w it would have cost me my entire savings to repair the charges on it. It was like 200k or something. That was <laughs> at the start of Nightmare. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, I'll just put it in my secondary slot, you know, and then use it if I need to cross a gap or something. And then uh, a couple of hours passed and I came back to town, forgot I had that in my inventory, and then clicked repair all oh, no. <laughs> and was like, oh, that's all of my money gone. <laughs> but you got uh, 30 more teleports, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah, it was. <laughs> so this, uh, this rune word thing, it seems to me like a big part of the problem is like the fundamental structure of Diablo 2 as an ARPG. Uh, one of the spin-offs from the Diablo series, although Diablo, you know, spun off from Rogue first, so it's all in the same lineage, is roguelikes, where you get to do a run and then the run is over. And the thing I l like about roguelikes is that you can have spikes in power level far beyond anything else that invalidate every single other item in your inventory. And it doesn't matter because the run is over 20 minutes later when you win the game, right? Mm -hmm. And then yep. you have to start again from scratch. The problem with how Diablo 2 is structured whenever you get one of these overpowered weapons is that you keep it. You're not going to stop playing the game for the next 20 hours. You're going to continue playing the game. And if you have found the best in slot item, why would you replace it for anything else? As you guys said, that these rune words basically eliminate the joy of finding new gear. And I think that the joy of finding new gear and equipment is probably one of the core reasons to play these games. Absolutely. So therefore, rune words are a bad thing. And I <laughs> like James's suggestion of making them a uh, specific niche, weird, weird shit for specific builds, uh, not being just broken additions to 30 stats, which is what they all seem to be right from the early game ones. It does kind of act as the safety net for people who are very unlucky in a way um you can make them but i feel like you could tone the power level down a lot and still have this safety net there one of them gives like plus three to all fire skills that's like an early game one you can get that yeah. at 
level 18 plus three to all fire skills what the fuck you're not gonna find an item of that level of power until like i don't know shane would know better than i but i can't imagine even in the first playthrough of nightmare you'd find something that rivals that in terms of power level yeah you'd be i don't even know if you could but if you could it'd be super lucky most of the time you're you're pretty fortunate if you find a plus two so yeah and that's really the thing is like i don't think the idea like on paper rune words i think are fantastic i think it's a really neat system i think it's fun i think it helps to diversify the 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 loot system in diablo 2 the one failing that it has is that they're badly tuned they are so overtuned mm -hmm. that they are a requirement because they're just objectively more powerful than almost every other item that you find so if they were able to tweak that i think that that would reintroduce a lot of possibilities as far as gear diversity is concerned you can you can always choose to not use them i guess i i mean i would never do that but yeah i mean <laughs> okay I, I i've been playing through this um roguelike new game fantastic game called nightmare reaper which is like a roguelike fps and you pick up weapons and they re-roll right like they roll stats just like in diablo 2 the problem is when you find a really good weapon because the game lets you take one weapon with you in between runs like when you find a shotgun you know and a shotgun shoots a bunch of little bullets but it has random projectile so instead of shooting 24 little shotgun pellets it's shooting 24 fireballs or whatever a weapon that's too good and it's exact exact same issue. You find a weapon that's too good and suddenly all of the loot systems are broken because the gun you have is bad. I started to not use that weapon. Like I was like, all right, well, I'm just not going to take the good weapon with me. I'm not going to take any good weapons with me uh, so that I can continue to engage with these loot systems. Just don't let you repair the weapon. Just let it break like the great game Zelda Breath of the Wild did to avoid this problem. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, it's not it's not the worst idea right like you add a you basically say it will you you craft this cool weapon it lasts a while and then it breaks again and you have to fall back on your regular gear for a while until you can craft the good thing again right i i don't think it's the worst idea in the world see those kind of things are making my eye twitch a little bit just because like i i'm the kind of person like i play i specifically play rpgs because and this is totally antithetical to the roguelike like ethos because I, I like roguelikes but i have to understand what i'm getting myself into because my default is the reason i enjoy rpgs is for the the character progression but that level of satisfaction of building a character and 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 keeping it of being like that's why i liked mmos so much yeah it's just because it's like mm. all right i've acquired all of this gear i've i've gemmed it out the right way i've built it i've whatever enchanted and shit like this this is this is my crowning achievement and like having all of that stripped away and starting from scratch is like i feel like i die a little inside every time that happens yeah and that's why i think a lot of people don't like those systems right it, it gets so interesting of... it's like the opposite of me because <laughs> uh, so i don't know so i sent james a link to something called swampletics i don't know if you've ever heard of this at all it's a runescape thing mm, uh, Shane. no i'm not familiar with that but basically runescape is like the game that's grind like it's grinding the game mm -hmm. like that's what the game is but this guy did a run through of, of runescape where he limited himself to just one area 
area of the map and he set himself some endgame challenge so he can't leave this area so one one area it's like i i'm sure you could do a similar thing in an mmo where you can't leave an area mm-hmm. the equivalent of starting the game on nightmare like he started in an area where all the enemies could like kill him incredibly quickly and he had no gear but he got value from things that no one else would get value from he's like there's this random monster that no one even kills that has a 1 in 128 chance of dropping this thing that for him was the most important thing in the world (laughs) and that shit fascinates me right like the idea that he has found and discovered value in something other people would dismiss out of hand. And I, I don't know, to me, it, it all links back. The thing I found interesting about this, this this series wasn't where he ended up. It was his journey along the way. And the journey that he had to... This weird specific journey he had to overcome the trials is what I enjoyed. It wasn't what him eventually being this super buff dude. It was, yeah, what he had to go through in order to get there. Okay. Yeah, but being when when you get to the point of being the super buff dude, every time you plow through a bunch of enemies, you you remember how hard it was before, and it's satisfying, I guess. Like that moment when I respect to blessed hammer, <laughs> just like uh, I was like, why did I spend the entire game left clicking once on every single enemy? I could have been doing this since level eighteen. <laughs> um, but yeah. To go back to items, um, just to step away from rune words, because obviously they're incredibly flawed. There was a couple of other things about the item system in Diablo 2 um, that stuck out to me quite notably. The first was the rate of progression between act, uh, acts and how much stronger like items that drop get is actually quite flat compared to more modern games, which often enjoy a more like exponential growth curve. So even when I was in like Act Four, if I went back to Act One, I could still find a you know a weaker but not that much weaker weapon in Act One. And I found that I didn't really like this overall um, because what ended up happening was that I would, you know, equip an item in Act 2 and then never find anything better for like three acts just because the, you know, the items weren't getting that much better between them. Because I really like comparing pieces of gear and trying to figure out which one's the best. And there's like a middle ground to hit here because if you're just constantly making the items in every act significantly better than the last one, then, you know, there's no choice to be made. But if they're all so similar that you're not making that many choices, it's also a bit boring. And and this compounded with, you know, me having fewer slots because of the rune words kind of resulted in me not finding that many upgrades as I was playing, which was, you know, honestly a bit of a downer because I was like so used to upgrading my gear slots regularly in these other games that I've played. Yeah, and it is a tightrope walk, right? Because on one hand, yeah. you can... I would almost say I would prefer, I think, to err on the side of slightly more boring. Uh, and I only say that okay. I only say that just because if you go in the other direction, you end up with, again, we keep going back to this, but with good reason, Diablo 3, where yep. suddenly you're doing damage that they have to show you in scientific notation, right? Like, what? it's ridiculous. <laughs> And that power inflation is just so out of hand. I mean, when they give you bonuses on your gear, it's quite literally like, this skill does 10,000% more damage. I'm like, 
you can't even conceptualize these numbers at some point. And so <laughs> like there's there is a fine line there. And I will say that I think I tend to agree with you that uh it starts out very very strong. Diablo 2 does where you are constantly equipping new things as you move along. But as you get closer to sort of the the close of normal difficulty, you've kind of figured out what works best for you so far and actual upgrades uh, become farther and fewer between, I think. And you were 100% correct in that this problem gets compounded with the introduction of these rune words because if you know about those, then suddenly you've already made an item that's probably going to last you for maybe an entire difficulty and you will never replace mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and that's just no fun at all. All right, I think it's time for another music break. Um, you guys have picked yours, so I'm going to go ahead and pick one of the songs from Ariat Peaks. I'm going to choose the Ice Caves because I think that the, you know, the orchestral tracks are really fantastic in this game and i love how tense and atmospheric it was when i was crawling through this long cavern that was filled to the brim with monsters and some strange looking uh, snowman enemies so this is diablo 2 lord of destruction's ice caves
Alrighty, that was the ice caves. Um, was there anything else you guys wanted to talk about regarding the character customization uh, or itemization even? Okay, can I ask you guys about set items? So um, I didn't engage with this uh, these rune words as much as you guys did. I kind of steered clear of them. Mm. Um, I used a thing for one item. But I did play around with the set items a bit. So my weapon choices were very frustrating because of those stupid assassin claws. So I ended up using a dagger I found in Act 1 the entire game, which gave me plus 100% magic find. Mm. Because I wasn't hitting people with shit anyway, so I just used this weird, unique dagger. Can I ask, how realistic is it to get, a, you know, all the items in a set in a playthrough? Because I had, I think I had three different sets where I got two items from the set, but that's all I could really, really get for from any of them, and I was running out of stash space trying to you know shuffle all these set items that that's and so weird to me because i found literally one set item the entire game actually dropped just from ball at the end like i never saw a second one i think it was this dagger i was holding in my hand it gave me plus 100 percent magic fine chance so i think i was finding a lot more rare stuff but right. my question is like is it a good thing that i i didn't finish all these set items or or is completing a set meant to be a nightmare plus plus sort of goal that you set yourself yeah it's incredibly unlikely that you would finish a set in one normal playthrough um it's definitely a longer term goal but then again i mean there's there's very few sets that are actually worth taking the time to to collect because of the rune words yeah i actually think that it's a good thing because i actually i think set items are bad in all rpgs basically because what tends to happen is that these items will be mediocre on their own and then insane in the set and that means that if you find you know a glove that is way better than your set gloves you can't equip that until you also find an insane chest an insane leg piece an insane helmet so it kind of locks those slots in until you find all of this stuff which mm -hmm. is really frustrating and to me is kind of boring like this this problem happened in wow they had set items they've since you know toned that down before they used to set items used to drop in sets of four now they're in sets of two and the bonus is only slight oh that's a cool idea i like yeah, that because they found that you know this problem would happen where you would get locked in and then suddenly you know the treadmill of fighting monsters to find new gear to fight harder monsters to find better gear broken half because you were no longer finding better gear anymore yeah do you feel like part of it is tied to the limited stash space in this game i i know this is something that they fixed a lot in the remaster but oh boy you do not have much room in your inventory or your stash in this game that's why you gotta start you get you gotta get used to those mule characters man it's the way to go like yeah were you were you guys playing on uh did you play online or did you make a single player local character just single player okay yeah, okay. Yeah, and that's <laughs> so fortunately that is something that they addressed on a couple different fronts with the uh with Resurrected in that they I think doubled the stash space if I recall correctly and then also just made it so that you have a shared stash so that you can very easily trade between your characters. Um which doesn't necessarily get rid of almost needing to have mule characters and I'm I'm for those of you not familiar with weird ARPG terminology Mule character is quite literally a character that you roll, never play, 
and only have just so that you can utilize their stash space in their inventory to store all your crap. So, so what would you do? Would you like launch two copies of the client and then log <laughs> oh, in? Oh no, it? no. This was a dangerous prospect. Let me tell you. So back in the day, uh, in order to do this effectively, there's a there was a notion of of perming a game, which is basically making an online game permanent. There was a certain amount of time from when a game was created um, that it would just immediately get erased from the server if you were to leave it and no one else was in the game. So you had to wait a certain amount of time. And I can't remember the exact number. I want to say it's like a minute or two, maybe um, for the game to perm. And then once the game was permanent, it would last for a certain amount of time, which then allowed you to quickly. And this was always like a butt pucker moment where like you would log out of that character, like drop your stuff on the ground in town, <laughs> log out. Log into your mule character, type in the name and password of your private game, and hope to God that it is still there, and pick up all your items and throw it in the stash. That's what you had to do. Oh my God, that's no. so funny. The, the risk, I love that. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, but the rewards. That's, oh. yeah. Also, speaking of rewards, I just want to point out real quick, was that the dagger you picked up, was that gull? Yeah, I, in fact, you know, a, a second one dropped. Like I, I got, I got a second one, exactly the same unique dagger uh, from Andariel. That is, and yeah, it was gone. that. Well, congratulations! I just want you to know that that's actually a super rare drop. So <laughs> the fact that you got two, I got, is I got crazy. two of them. Yeah, I was like really pissed off when I found the second one. I'm like, can I dual wield these? And it's like, <laughs> like fuck. <laughs> yeah, I think the best I did was I found that staff, and I found. Man, I was like crying for Patrick on the inside. I found an amulet that was plus two to trap skills. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's like, well, guess this is going in the stash and then later getting sold for repair costs. <laughs> Just screenshot and send it to me. So I had I had one other question to ask you guys about the gear system, if you don't mind. Mm. Yeah. Uh, J James kind of lent into this a bit when he talked about turning skeletons into cobras. Do you think that Diablo 2's gear system is too limited in terms of it giving you flat bonuses as opposed to fundamentally changing the way you play the game or, I guess, leaning very hard into a weird specific style of playing the game? Because I know that obviously roguelikes do this, but I believe that the later ARPGs um, that you can play today have gear systems that basically do weird shit. Uh, is Diablo 2's gear system still enjoyable, or are the more weird and wonderful ways uh, modern gear works more interesting? My experience with Diablo 2 was that I actually was really enjoying how little flat damage you got from your gear and how often lots of the stats were like utility things rather than i think in diablo 3 is particularly bad where the only thing that matters is the attack score or the crit DPS. chance or whatever dps yeah. basically mm -hmm. um and then in path of exile you know you'll have unique gear that gives you special effects but lots of it is stat stick stuff um All and right. in diablo, like, diablo 2 you know, there was often times where, like, I would genuinely put the gear on because it had good magic find or gold find or something when I wasn't taking too much damage, or I would prioritize resistances, or on my paladin, I liked stacking the gear that cast explosions when I got hit, 
uh, there was lots of stuff that I felt like I could equip that wasn't just like raw damage that was, you know, felt good to equip. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think a lot of games kind of fall into this trap where, you know, they have a primary stat system. So the only thing that matters is stacking that primary stat or your damage stat or your movement speed, something like that. Um, and so I thought that it was okay if a bit, you know, a bit shallow in this regard. Yeah, and I think the design philosophy behind it was exactly what you were talking about, Patrick, in that it's the unique... Uniques were always supposed to be the thing that would do, like, the very specific weird stuff. And mm -hmm. basically everything else... I mean, I suppose sets also kind of do that to a certain degree, but... Everything else below that, you know, your magic, your rare items, things like that, are really just statistical bonuses. And I think that's mostly okay. I think that does lend a certain personality to that class of, like, unique item in that it does actually make it more unique. Part of my issue with some games that have come after this as well is that those that terminology has lost its meaning. Like they'll call something like a legendary or a unique item, and it's it's not really, you know, because there's nothing truly unique about it. It's just a a classification of treasure at that point, um, which mm -hmm. kind of sucks. But uh, no, I I think that was kind of always the point. Um, now whether or not that's the best way to go, I think is you know up to you. I think that <laughs> uh, yeah, because I mean you're right. Like if we're comparing this to other games you could literally install and play right now, I mean sure, I think it's probably a little more shallow than than some of your other potential options. Um but then again, it's like you run that very fine line of do you stick with these more flat bonuses or do you go full on Diablo 3 where basically everything is a percentage bonus and suddenly your power levels are parabolic, you know? Yeah, so so just looking through, I've just opened up some Diablo 2 items to give you an example of cool ones that are higher level they didn't access. Spell Steel. It's a it's an axe that has four different spells attached to it with different charges. Mm. Storm Rider, it's an axe that has a chance to cast th a different percentage, three different lightning spells. I think this stuff is actually the most fun and interesting stuff that can drop in the game. Because if you had a character that was, I don't know, doing a lot of lightning damage, all of a sudden you've got access to a weapon that does all these different cool lightning spells. If you're playing a regular melee character and you find that, that weapon, it's like, boom, here's four spells on your weapon that you can toggle between. I feel like in a normal playthrough, at, at least in my experience, a single regular playthrough, I didn't really get access to that cooler stuff, but maybe that's the point. Maybe your first playthrough is meant to be more vanilla, and then you're meant to find all the cool stuff later on in the game. Yeah, I had the same experience as you, as I didn't find that much cool and interesting gear. Um, I would have enjoyed it more if that kind of stuff had dropped more regularly, um, stuff that changes the way you play. Um, I, like, yeah, those... even if it's intrinsically less powerful, right? Like, it, To me, it's not about power level. It's about it doing something cool. Because then even if it's not very good, you can equip it and try it out for a bit, and it can be fun to use even for five to ten minutes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but does I, that cheapen the legendary quality? I, I don't know. I don't think so. No, because at the end of the day, like, I mean, listen, we, we all, or at least I presume, that we all like to have our characters feel more powerful, right? There's That's just mm -hmm. fun. Sure. Great. 
but there's something to be said for uh you know the more entertaining aspects of those things of making something that is truly unique of like oh holy shit like this item you know whatever turns my skeletons into cobras or whatever like just something like that maybe it's not (laughs) an effective character power difference but it's just something that's fun to play with and yeah so yeah for for me at least for my normal playthrough i didn't really get to lean into that kind of stuff once again i know i've been repeating this a lot but that's a thing that roguelikes and games like the binding of isaac really excel at they give you a weird item and that influences your playthrough um obvious the the cool thing about diablo 2 is that you can scale that item out because of power level eventually so i still think it could have been present here itemization and the character customization is the most important part of the game for me because i i don't really expect to enjoy the gameplay um of these kinds of games to be honest it's so funny (laughs) well part of it a large part of this is that i just don't think that arpg enemies can be engaging enough for me right like i have six thousand hours in a game like dota 2 which you know these games play exactly similar the difference is you're playing against people who have a way of engaging you that no AI ever can, right? Like, um, I don't expect to come up into a room against an enemy and have this cool battle against them that, you know, tests me as a player. Like, that's not what I come into these games expecting. What I, you know, want to do is craft a character and look up all these weird items and weird skills and figure out how that puzzle kind of fits together. Um, and, you know, because of rune words, because of the lack of unique drops that I was getting, because of how linear the skill trees are, I wasn't, you know, engaged on that level that I want to be out of this genre, to be honest. And I think that's not the fault of Diablo 2. You know, it obviously did a really good job being the first, you know, major player in this genre. Um, I guess just to me, more recent games are much more interesting itemization wise and um character customization wise yeah and we didn't really touch on it too much but just another thing to kind of bring up because it is sort of intrinsically linked with gear and things like that is just your character's attributes right Mm. that actually was the most that was more engaging to choose for me than um, really skill tree yeah me too that's i i I felt like those decisions well, I felt like that decision was meaningful, whereas yeah. I already knew. It was like, pick the lightning skills. Boom. Yeah, it was like, every time I got a skill point, I was like, I know I'm putting this into Blessed Hammer. There's literally zero decision here, where for me, there was a decision between health, strength, and agility, you know, for my defense or my accuracy at the start of a game. But maybe that's a misunderstanding of the stats system. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, well, I, I guess yeah. if you, like, if you look up a build, you know the exact numbers, but I was trying not to do that, so I was doing it by feel, I guess. Well, it's not even just knowing the exact numbers, it's that there's, there's, I would argue there's even less diversity in attribute assignment in this game than there is with skill assignment because almost every single character is put only enough points into strength to wear your gear and then dump everything else into vitality because that's literally the only thing that matters like even with casters so i did actually see that but then i was like but i can't wield anything because i'm assuming those builds require you to 
be wearing gear that increases your attributes, right? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, that's sort of the end goal, right? But okay. the, the, the thing is, is like you have to keep in mind that the a lot of these builds have survived from from the days when you couldn't respec a character. And so, you know, they're planning ahead in that like if you don't want to basically have wasted your attribute points because they are a limited resource, mm. then like for the love of God, do not put anything in dexterity unless you were using a shield and you're trying to go for maximum block percentage. Otherwise it's probably pointless for most characters, right? Um and so that was always a thing is like to me that was oh that was also always a non choice because it's just like, what do I need? 60 strength to wear this piece of gear? fantastic that's how much i have the rest of this is going into vitality because i like to not die that's that's literally it i didn't know what gear i was going for well sure so I, sure I, I could yeah, yeah yeah so i i can't be like i need this much strength and this much dexterity i don't know how much i needed so i i kind of i mean i probably it's very unoptimal but i put a few points into mind because although i was chugging potions i wanted to be able to cast a certain number of spells traps without running out of mana mm. i put a lot of points in vitality and then i was kind of like putting probably more points in strength than dexterity but it, i was kind of having to feel it out from level to level based on like the average requirements of the levels of the shops i was in. sure i was using that as a rough guide to figure it out so. and again yeah. in normal like that's totally fine right yeah i had the same experience because i was playing like a caster that had a shield but also had like heavy strength requirements for their gear. So actually, like until I could basically optimize my mana pool away and not have to deal with it, I had to pay attention to all four stats for a little while because of the block chance. And um, but health was definitely the best stat by far, and it wasn't close. Yeah, and of course, yes. you know, I'm I'm talking about this from a, a certain perspective, right? In that, like, once you once you've gotten off the into the deep end of <laughs> diablo 2 that that's yep. kind of the thing is like you suddenly realize that the attribute system kind of doesn't matter it's just get the biggest health pool you can and enough stats everywhere else to wear gear and that's that's basically it so that's kind of another shortcoming i mean is it something that we can blame them for necessarily i don't personally think so because again it's kind of like not necessarily the first crack at this for them but this was still, you know, this is like the grandpappy of ARPGs, so I kind of have to give them a little bit of leeway. It, it's no real different from Dark Souls, honestly. Dark Souls, you, <laughs> true. Dark Souls one, That's true. You meet your weapon requirements. Yeah, you meet your weapon requirements, health and endurance. Yeah. If you're playing a caster, it's a bit more complicated, but not by not by much. It just, I mean, the difference is Dark Souls one is a lot more engaging to play in those early hours and those stats matter a lot in terms of your survivability and ability to actually get through the early ones, but it's not a deep stat system. No, it's get your weapon requirements. But then again, like what, what the other thing is that that's kind of an endemic problem with a lot of action RPG games or anything that has an attribute system like that, because how do you, how do you effectively balance that? Right? Like it's a, it's an issue I've seen with mm. almost every one of these games that I've played is that it always inevitably comes down to your, your main primary stat that boosts your damage and then survivability. And then the other ones are totally pointless. And I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I think that that's a pretty complicated problem to solve. And I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it can effectively be solved if you're going to try to categorize 
you know, attributes in the way that we've traditionally done it. Well, you need you need more meaningful attributes. Like mm. imagine if movement speed was an attribute. The only thing I can think of is have more attributes tied to meaningful uh, stats. Like, can you imagine if movement speed was a stat that you actually had to invest? Uh, everyone would invest in just movement yep. speed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what over health? Absolutely. You you can't die if you don't get hit. Okay. Okay, sure. So you set the scaling of the movement speed increase to a point where it's relative to the others. Like, it's all about 1% movement increase per point, uh, half a percentage, wh whatever you need to do. I, I, I do agree that stat points are ultimately just there to make sure all classes mm -hmm. can't do everything, right? Yeah, I think that if you make every stat point affect, like, lots of different things... And then every class needs each stat for a different thing. Like something when I was playing Elden Ring recently is that your agility actually affects your cast speed for spells in mm -hmm. a noticeable way. Um, and I thought that that was a decent way of making that stat not dead for casters. Um, like stuff like that, I think you can do. Like if you just layer this huge spider web of effects from each stat rather than each have like. The strength stat is the thing tanky classes take. Mm. Then you can do it. It's just you have to, you know, make it a big web um, and make each individual like allocation kind of meaningful. But it's it's really hard to do that thing right. I think. Yeah, I'll say that's that's probably why most developers don't do that because it's a nightmare to try to balance. Also, a nightmare to grasp. If you're a new player and it's like this one stat governs these 10 attributes, your eyes are going to roll into the back of your head. I mean, maybe not for you two weirdos, but for most, for most I mean, human listen, beings. cards on the table, like part of the reason, and I know that I'm about to make an enemy here, but that's fine, I guess. Part of the reason that I bounced so hard off of Path of Exile was because of that giant spiderweb skill tree system. I looked at that and I was just like, nope, I'm out. I, I can't, I can't do this. Like there's, this looks way too complicated. Like we have taken this to its logical conclusion of like taking what Diablo two did and just cranking it up to 11. And this seems excessive. And for that reason, I'm out. It's so good because the literal reason I installed the game was because I saw a screenshot of the skill tree. Oh God, like, I hated it. I hated it so like, much. I was like, my favorite game is Final Fantasy X. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, and I love the sphere grid. And I was like, mm -hmm. holy shit, it's just the sphere grid. And I love the sphere grid. And that is that is the exact <laughs> reason I installed that game. And, you know, like, I, I get it, right? Like, I get other people seeing that and being overwhelmed. But that's the kind of thing that, like, draws me in. Guys, I'm I'm out of notes. Did, did anyone else have any um anything else they wanted to add to this before we move on to final thoughts? Uh, I think, well, I just notes. wanted to throw in there real quick because I didn't really mention it too much. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, how we felt about the gameplay. And mm. I just wanted to throw it out there that I, for me, I, I think I mentioned this earlier that this, this is kind of like a comfort food game for me. And yeah. part of the reason for that is the gameplay is, is because it, because it's not overly complicated. And I know that's not what everybody is looking for like if you are trying to find something that's going to have a lot of intricate you know interlocking systems and things to figure out and you know skill builds etc cetera, etc cetera, then i can totally see why you'd be like eh, this game feels pretty bare bones 
but honestly, that's part of the draw for me because sometimes like I, I like other games like that, but sometimes I just want to be able to sit down and just click on things and they die. And Hmm. there's some sort of therapeutic sort of thing to that, that I can't really accurately describe, but, um, it's just a zone out kind of game for me, I guess, where it's just something I know that I, I actually have fun playing. I'm enjoying my time with it. And it's not a big mental investment, I guess, is what it is. And for that's for that reason, that's that's why I actually enjoy the gameplay as it is. Like I don't think I would want it to be more complicated because it fills that sort of niche for me, if that makes sense. What you're saying yeah. is it's complicated enough, right? Right. The the thing is for me with Diablo One, at the end of the day, Diablo One was an interesting game. For, for me to play through because of how simple it was mm-hmm. and it was simple to like it was it was even more simple than i was expecting when when i remembered that there was no skill tree i was like what <laughs> this is diablo <laughs> and there's no skill tree uh but it it was the it was such a restrained and focused um take on the rpg genre for me mm-hmm. diablo 2 and maybe this is because of my lack of familiarity with it it veers closer to the modern ARPGs than it does Diablo 1. And I can't help but feeling it's more complicated than it is simple. But I, I imagine if you've played it for 100 hours, a lot of what I I guess I was tr- having to learn and engage with is just is just I- assumed for you. You just understand it intrinsically. Sure, sure. And I mean, and that's that's also why I said earlier that, you know, I'll go back to Diablo 1 probably more often than not for for that kind of experience because i'm just like yeah i just i you know what i'm gonna make a new warrior and i'm gonna give him a sword and a shield and we're gonna go down into the catacombs and beat things up and find loot and i'm okay with that because i just want to play something and not have to agonize over a character build or where to put my stats i just want to play and Mm. that kind of fills that role it is Diablo One is a lot closer to a modern like roguelite, I think, than Diablo Two is because mm. one of the big things for Diablo One for me is that you find spells on the ground from enemies. So mm. a lot of the stuff that you have access to is purely random. So you kind of have this thing where you have to make do with what you've got rather than, you know, you have a character and that's the character you have. And there's something really enjoyable about that. Um, to me which Diablo 2 lacks like you do have items that you find but they don't you know change your playthrough there's this they don't like, guide your build yeah yeah I there's remember, this level of reactivity that's missing here yeah I, I remember when I played warrior back in the day in Diablo 1 my warrior ended up being like an int warrior because I, I liked the spells so my warrior was like a he was like a spell blade and I <laughs> I don't think that really ever happens in diablo 2 when you start the game you have a you know the direction your character is going to go well and that's an excellent point because you know you had said that in a way diablo 1 is more of a restrained experience and it is but it also has this like weird amount of flexibility that diablo 2 doesn't have because if you find like a you know a necromancer wand or something and you're playing an amazon well you're sol you can't use that but if you're playing warrior in Diablo one and you find a holy bolt spell and you're just like, I want to cast holy bolt. 
you can do that. You just need to put points into your, you know, intellect, and then suddenly you're a warrior that can cast spells. Yeah, and I did that a bit as well in my warrior playthrough. Um, so it's missing that. I'm glad you brought up what you mentioned before about liking the game as just something to chill out to and play, because at the start of the game, that was actually my experience. Like, I was so enamored with just the feeling of hitting enemies in this game like just the the chunk of hitting things with a mace and hearing that sound effect and then them dying in one hit the, the death so... animations are still as good as ever we should yeah, definitely the, mention that yeah yeah and the sound effect when money and items drop is still great like i was happy you know just to left click enemies for like two hours in a row while listening to a podcast on you know on my other monitor or something um because you know the just the feel of hitting things was so good um and it's such a relaxing thing to play for long periods of time so like i kind of you know even though my favorite arpgs are the really complex engaging ones um i still got that like found that value and just like chilling out and like going through the areas and hitting stuff while listening to stuff you know on my headphones it was quite enjoyable yeah it is it is a perfect second screen game yeah Alrighty, i think it's time for final impressions um as our guest shane do you want to take us away should um should people play diablo 2 today is it is it worth that <laughs> time to play Ooh, that is a loaded question um we didn't even really talk too much about what got changed with the the hd remaster really um right but... yeah because that's a legitimate way for people to engage with this game today yeah and honestly at this point and i i would say that that's the way to go like if you're going to play diablo 2 there's very few reasons why you would want to go and track down an og copy of lord of destruction and install that um they did a pretty bang up job with resurrected and it's going to give you that legitimate diablo 2 experience because as we said it's essentially that game under the hood just with a really nice paint job um and they're also including a lot of those quality of life improvements that a lot of us have been wanting for a very long time so i actually think the game only stands to improve from here um which doesn't always happen with remasters and remakes so i i'm as a longtime fan i'm actually pretty satisfied with that and there's a couple reasons why i would say that i would suggest folks go back and try this today um part of it is if you have any interest in action rpgs at all and for some reason you haven't played this it's definitely worth the time to go back and check it out just to see where a lot of the inspiration came from but even if you don't give a single shit about that the game itself for as much criticism as we've given it is still legitimately just fun to play it gives you that normal experience where you can basically choose skills kind of however you want and you're probably going to be fine uh, but then if you want to push further into it and try to you know test your skills then it does give you two more difficulty levels to play through um, and there's a ton of loot to find hopefully you don't short circuit too much of that with the rune words but i think it's still worth worth the experience today even with all of the other contenders on the market i think it has something special that a lot of those don't um i'll go next uh diablo 2 is an interesting one um i think this is a game that for me has unfortunately been almost completely overshadowed by 
modern takes on the genre and spin-offs of the genre. I think that almost every single element in Diablo 2 has been spun off on or mostly done better in other games. It's so my perspective is kind of intrinsically limited. I I don't really play games for 10 hours in order to get to the best part of the game. I don't do that and I'll never do that. If a game's not good on its first playthrough, then it's not worth my time and I don't think it's worth other people's time either. So if you're that kind of person, then Diablo 2 isn't a recommend. Where I can carve out a space for recommending it is specifically to people who are invested into ARPGs or MMOs or anything like that. Because I do think there is enough value in this game and it's kind of... I guess, subdued take on ARPG tropes that you can enjoy this, as Shane said, as like a more chilled version, a less invested version of those other games that you play. If you're that kind of person, you've played a lot of ARPGs, Diablo 2 probably is worth your time. If you're new to the ARPG genre, if you haven't really dabbled with this very much, or if you're only kind of casually interested in this, I cannot recommend Diablo 2. There there are just better options in the world today. And the thing that makes Diablo 2 Diablo 2 has been cloned so many times. We often talk about the uniqueness factor of games. You cannot talk about the uniqueness factor of Diablo 2. This has been copied and copied zillions of times over. So yeah, if you're a very particular kind of person, you might get value from this. But for most people, I got to say it's a pass. So for me, I think that this basically comes down to how willing you are to push through that start bit, like Patrick said, because for my first playthrough, there was times, like the first two acts of the game, I was enjoying myself. Like there was a very, you know, nice simplicity to the game with that had brilliant, you know, sound effects and feedback on hits. So I was very happy to play through the first two acts of this game on normal. And at about Act 3, um, I started to fall off very sharply and started to get very bored. Um, and I found that my, you know, up until the end of Normal, I was not enjoying myself. However, once I got to Nightmare, the game became so much more enjoyable. I was having a blast playing the game. I was enjoying myself so much that I'm going to keep playing the game. And like normally, you know, I don't really do that a lot after we finish the games for the show. But I'm, you know, I'm thinking about going back and playing the game. Like even now as we're talking about it, I want to go back to the game. So to me, that's the mark, you know, of something great. So if you can push through, you know, those first you know the first normal act and get to the fun part of the game i can absolutely recommend this game um if you can't then i have a much harder time recommending it i think that the itemization and the character customization in particular for me is not enough to sustain the game on itself it is in nightmare where the moment to moment gameplay starts being you know more demanding that everything comes together that said, like, if you haven't played an ARPG before, I think, you know, finding an old version of the classic is fine. But to me, honestly, 
If you've never played an ARPG before, dropping the big price tag for the remaster version just doesn't seem worth it when there's so many good free-to-play options available on the market. So um, it kind of all comes down to, like the other two have said, how much you care about the genre and the history of the genre, because undeniably, if you do, this is the best game ever to play. <laughs> you know, it is the granddaddy of the genre. Um, and B, how willing you are to push through that initial difficulty spike. So if you can get around that, then absolutely I can recommend this game. I had a great ton of fun once I got to that point um, with a whole lot of, you know, downs before that. And in particular, fuck the Arcane Sanctuary. That is the worst piece of shit I've ever encountered <laughs> in this genre. Um, I, we didn't mention it, but I have to. Um, it was truly miserable, and I... Here, other people have similar experiences. So, is that is that because you're a melee character? Because I enjoyed that as like a character with ranged abilities. So it's arranged in a plus kind of fashion, and the exit is on one of the four, and I picked you know every one that wasn't that one, and then my game crashed, <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. and it and it moved. So I had to go through the whole thing twice because the spawn changed. Um, I'm yeah, also that convinced was... that the game purposefully just makes it always the last one. Like, I know that that's probably not the case, but I feel it like it is. It does feel that way. Because it happens, like, <laughs> but, every uh, time. For, for me, the worst part was definitely the maggot caverns. I'm yes, like, maggot wow, layer. I'm like, why got, did nobody bring like, that up? You've got, like, a literal straight line. Oh, it's, it's so just... poorly designed, though. It's such a tight yeah. space. and ugh. No room to maneuver. Yeah, See, for me, my character who had like really high block chance and they just stood there doing damage in an area around me just no problems <laughs> with that area like i just stood in a tunnel and waited and everything died <laughs> so so I, I do have one final like addendum to ask you about shane with mm. relation to this so uh james and i uh didn't get into the end game mm -hmm. and i know that this genre arpgs often has an end game and that's the reason to do it what, can can you tell us a little for those who are interested in the end game those kinds of players what is it like do you think it's it's worthwhile that entirely depends on the kind of player that you are if you are somebody who is totally into grinding you're going to love the end game if you want nothing to do with grinding you probably don't want to get there uh essentially the the end game of Diablo 2 is just rerunning the same few high level zones over and over again there's there's without going into too much of the details there there are level numbers that are assigned to areas of the game and that dictates the the loot table for that particular mm -hmm. area and so there are only certain spots that have the highest level uh, attributed to them and so those are the ones that everybody runs over and over and over again to try to get good loot and really that's kind of the end game um is just running like doing bale runs or pindle skin runs or cows um the the secret cow level that's not really much of a secret anymore uh just doing those over and over again to try to get good drops to can you can you die while doing this like is there risk involved there or is it just about the efficiency at which you do them it honestly it really comes down to the efficiency at that point i mean there is still a chance that you will die, um, but with such optimized builds when you're doing like, you know, hell bail runs or something, the chances of dying, frankly, are pretty slim. Um, so it's really more about maximizing that efficiency. That's why Enigma is pretty much a necessary item for 
almost every character class. Um, so that that's really what it boils down to. There is also, you know, the PvP aspect. Some people really get into uh, doing PvP in Diablo 2. I was never that person. I'm just not a huge PvP guy. Um, mm-hmm. But that is also another alternative, if that interests you at all. Doing all the bail runs and getting the gear... Like what's like what's the end game goal once you have the gear? Like are you doing it for the sake of getting the gear? I mean, isn't that's a pretty existential question, isn't it? It's just like what is the goal? Do you retire the character once they're fully geared out? Is that how it works? Uh I mean either that or if you're building them for like magic find runs like that, you can use it to fuel other character builds so you can roll up alts. Yeah, I guess what I mean is like if there are these like optional super bosses in the game that require that kind of grinding to beat, I can understand because there's like a goal at the end is to beat these, you know, three dudes to say you did it, I guess. Um, And that's what a lot of the more modern games do. They make these like these fights that are so, you know, unachievably difficult to the average average player that their their purpose for existing isn't for people to beat them it's for it's just for there to be a concrete goal at the end for grinding i guess and diablo 3 i think has infinite difficulty right like you can just keep bumping it up and just forever uh eh, not really um no okay. no diablo 3 kind of tops out at torment 16 you can go uh, greater rifts well the greater rifts also have a cap that's like 150 People have pretty reliably reached that at this point. So there is definitely a cap. Um, No, I will say that there are um, there are Ubers, there are Uber bosses in Diablo 2, which is exactly what you were talking about. And so if you do manage to defeat those, then you can craft an Annihilus charm. Which um, and we didn't even friggin' talk about charms. That's a whole other thing in the game. But um, it's <laughs> it's it's a small charm that you can put in your inventory that basically has like crazy stat boosts to it, and you can only ever have one on a given character. Um, so that's kind of an end game goal. Okay, uh, like that. Well, that's fine then. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I still I like all, I I really like all of the the mapping systems that the newer games have. I think I think they let you grind while feeling like you're doing different things. I think, I don't think I could do stuff like bail runs for long periods of time. I think I would get bored with that, to be honest. I, I just don't think ARPGs are for me. Just, <laughs> That's the conclusion you've I, come to at the you, end of this. Well, well, you know, you said like, you know, if you don't mind grinding, I'm like, if you're an ARPG player, yes, you like grinding. Like it's just, <laughs> it's in your, it's in your blood at some, at some level. That That's probably true. Yeah. 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 All right. So I, I think that just about wraps it up. Um, Thank you everyone for listening to us today. Thank you for any new listeners from Retro Hangover for sticking with us this long. I know it was a long episode, but there was a lot to cover. Uh, sometimes we do these more complex games and we need to do them justice. Uh, so we are the Retrospectors podcast. All of our content is on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to um all of our episodes, as well as a bunch of articles James and I have written. I'll um, pop my Diablo 2 article that Shane mentioned. Thanks for reading that, by the way. Um, yeah. No, it was the, a great uh, read. Show notes. 
yeah it kind of summated my disdain for mmos is what it really was <laughs> that, it was like all of my anger at that diablo 3 release i was so mad about it that's fair you <laughs> yeah, need a, uh, you need an outlet you know exactly it's an outlet so we'll put all the links there um and most importantly of all we have a discord server like uh like the retro hangover guys and that's where we do most of our community interaction so uh if you enjoyed the show if you want to come say hi if you want to recommend a new game for us to play we'd love to hear it um if you want to get mad at things we've said we'd also love to hear it but we will (laughs) respond in kind so just be prepared for that um so yeah please drop drop on by we'll pop a link there shane where can people find you and your show uh yeah yeah so well first of all i just want to thank you guys for having me on this was a whole lot of fun i will always take an opportunity to talk about diablo so um i really enjoyed your perspectives on this it's it's honestly refreshing to hear differing viewpoints on this because a lot of games especially with fandoms like this tend to end up being echo chambers so it was uh it was really nice to hear your thoughts on it and uh as far as I'm concerned, like I said at the beginning, um, I am one of the hosts of the Retro Hangover podcast. So if you didn't mind listening to me blab about Diablo 2 here and you want to hear me talk some more along with my co-host Chris, uh, you can just head over to Linktree slash Retro Hangover. That's uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Retro Hangover. And you can find all of our stuff there. You can get the show. You can get our public discord uh, where we're doing monthly high score challenges, which are a lot of fun. Uh, This month we're doing Robotron 2084, uh, which is an arcade game. So some friendly uh, competition there. And uh, we've got all our other stuff, Patreon, merch store, all the prerequisites. So please go check that out. Um, We would be forever grateful. And uh, we'll see if people can pass the test of getting through the past five, first five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the litmus test, man. <laughs> that's a test, yeah. It's it's worth it, guys, trust me. <laughs> or, or maybe you'll just enjoy it. I guess that's the other alternative. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Okay, so that sums it up. Uh so we needed to talk about what we're doing next fortnight. So, James, we've kind of assigned this Diablo 2 episode to you, even though it wasn't strictly your suggestion. It's you know enough in your wheelhouse that you can take it. So uh it's back to me for this fortnight. And I have selected a game that I've kind of been keeping an eye on for a very long time. It is called Star Wars Republic Commando. Oh. Do, you, do you know about this game? Do you know about this game, Shane? I do. Oh, interesting. Have you played it? Do you I, have any thoughts on it? I have, yeah. Um, oh. I, think, I think you guys will have a, you guys will have a good episode on that one. Um, it's one of those ones that may, maybe, maybe doesn't age super well but i think there's a there i think there's a lot of gold to find in there if you're willing to 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 push through it i mean if you're a star wars fan especially well the thing is i remember reading a review for this in a gaming magazine like when it released and it was one of those games that was like a seven or an eight out of ten and i found that sometimes those seven out of tens can be incredible like they can be the best games but more often than not, they're just not very good games. So I guess I, I guess we'll find out. I, there were some interesting things about the squad combat and how the squad combat worked, which um which really seemed interesting to me. Seemed to be a bit different from what other FPS games were doing at the time. Yeah, I mean, listen, man, I'm the one that defended Shadow of the Empire for N64, so what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess we'll find out. So once again, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Have a great one, and we'll do Star Wars Republic Commando for next episode. See you later. Bye.